0: Welcome back to and Dormer. We've been away, but here we are, like a bad penny, returning to you. Uh, my name is Gary Naylor, and I'm joined this evening by Rob Smythe. Hello, Rob.
1: Hello, how are you doing?
0: And Mike Gibbons. Hello, Mike. Hi,
1: Gary. How are you doing?
0: I'm okay. Uh, we're looking at the 1998 World Cup. So we're edging towards the edge of our envelope of uh, 80s and 90s football. But what a World Cup it was. And we're going to start, as all World Cup start, with the qualifying. Um, Rob, uh, you've looked at qualifying. What have you hauled out of that uh, morass of fixtures?
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you could almost do a. A pod just on the qualification, but I try and break it down to a few points. So um, the European stuff was probably the most interesting and the kind of tightest. It was the first time they had playoffs um, in European qualification for the whole kind of every team. So it was um, a safety net for teams like Italy who didn't win their group. For example, the four years earlier, you'd had that crazy night, uh, November 93, when there was no second chance. And all kinds of uh, big teams missed out. Um, wasn't quite the case this time. So it was points of interest: England qualifying ahead of Italy. That famous nil-nil draw in Italy, um, which was kind of a masterclass. Really, it was kind of when in Rome performance. They basically well not beat Italy at their own game, but they kind of beat them at their own nil-nil draw by you know taking time out of the game, drawing fouls, superb defensive discipline, organisation. It was a real um, triumph for Glenn Hoddle, and the interesting thing is, well, is that he actually knew going into that game while he was at that game that as soon as he got home, he was going to tell his wife and kids he was leaving, and yet he was able to kind of compartmentalize the whole thing. It's, I think it's quite a fascinating insight into his, um, his mind. Yeah, Ireland lost in a uh, play just off- before just yeah, before we
0: we leave uh, that that. Game. I have a bit of a revisionist view on this, and it was a view I held at the time, that England, given the players we had, if we had to go to any country in the world, really, and draw nil-nil, this shouldn't be beyond our compass. And there was this enormous kind of outpouring, especially in the press, that we'd actually secured a nil-nil draw when but, we needed a nil-nil draw. But that's and, what they
2: needed, yeah. What?
0: Yeah, but I, th- I still think, you know, it was a commendable performance. But I've seen some kind of listicles where you have, you know, England's 10 greatest performances in the World <sighs> Cup, you know, and, it, and it's in there. We needed to get a nil-nil away in Europe. It shouldn't be beyond the ken of these uh, players. I mean, Mike, is that unfair or is there something uh,
1: I think you you kind of have to weigh in the caliber of the opposition um, that they were going away to play against. Um, you know, it was Italy? They'd already beat England in qualifying. I think about sort of nine months earlier at, at Wembley, and um, there were players missing as well. I think Shearer, the captain, he was out; he was injured for most of that um, season. I, th- I think David Batty was suspended as well. Which might not sound like a big deal now, but he was part of the sort of Huddles rejig mid- midfield where he played in some batty in front of the um the back three. Um <clears> so I think it's uh, I mean, it's celebrated because, you know, that they, they got to the World Cup. Um I think off the back of it. Sorry. I,
2: no, me. I was gonna say I think the big you have to remember is that huge inferiority complex England had against the kind of elite nations, and particularly Italy actually, who'd beaten them in various tournaments and qualification and the other thing I think it is so celebrated is because it was pretty much you know it was almost like Hoddle wrote the game before it happened it wasn't just that they it wasn't backs to the wall or anything it was just a very kind of cool methodical well particularly he talks a lot in his book which we'll probably get onto later about the way they plan to just draw fouls in between midfield and defense just take the stick out of the game I personally thought it was really good because England just didn't. England didn't do that. England couldn't play for it. You know, it was just you say it shouldn't be beyond their kin, but it kind of was for a long time. Uh, It was very unusual English performance as well, and I think that's also Mm. what was celebrated. It was a level of um, kind of tactical sophistication that we at that stage weren't used to seeing. I know Venables was very sophisticated tactically, but slightly different because all these games were at home, so they were never playing for a nil nil. I don't know. I I haven't watched a game in many many years, probably. 23 years, but um, yeah, maybe we should all watch it again and
0: uh, praise. Well, my, my, my abiding memory was at the, at the time when I read the reaction, thinking, well, there's a lot of journalists looking forward to a Café au lait on the Champs-Élysées uh-huh. and the Promenade des Anglais on expenses. I thought, no wonder they're happy. I, but well, maybe well, that's um, being think, cynical. Well,
2: I <laughs> think it's slightly, because don't forget there was a second chance. I mean, it was great to qualify, a bit like when Beckham scored against Greece in 2001. It was a an orgiastic moment for um, England fans. But there was, it wasn't like um, the previous tournaments where it was this or nothing. So uh, England were, it's probably easy to say now that England were always going to qualify anyway, but it certainly felt like that. And the fact that Italy qualified, albeit in quite a tight playoff, um, makes me think they would have done anyway. I, I, I don't know if it was that. I think, yeah, I don't know. Maybe you're right. I don't know. I mean, we'll perhaps it, it, was,
0: it was two years on from England abroad sort of doing the dentist chair prior to Euro 96 and England abroad this time putting in one of the great disciplined performances, but still one that I felt was overplayed. Uh, wh- but wh- um, perhaps, well, you can, perhaps you can react to that, listeners. You well, can uh, <laughs> tweet us. <laughs> and
2: call us twats, if you like. One other, <laughs> just one last thing on it. For all the quality of the performance, they almost bugged it up right at the end right right hit the post a really tight angle, went around the keeper. And then, <clears throat> I think this is an injury time, Italy went down the other end and Vieri headed like a fraction wide. So it just shows that <clears throat> even when you play that well, even when the game goes pretty much as you wanted it to, you're still against quality teams. And Italy were a good side. I mean, they didn't have the greatest World Cup, but they, had a, they were a good side with a hell of a lot of good players. You're always <clears throat> in danger,
1: even, even when things go pretty much perfectly.
0: That's true. Uh, Mike, I'll give you the last word on this. You were trying to get in before.
1: Yeah, I'll just add a couple of bits to it. In that, um, I think this result, it kind of added to the sense that England were going somewhere under Hoddle, I think, and that he'd, that he'd built on what um, Venables had done. So since since they lost to Italy in the February of 97, um, they'd won the tournoi, which is only a friendly tournament, but you know, they beat Italy and they beat France in that. And yeah, getting to the World Cup, Ahead of Italy like this, it it's it, it, I guess it all added to the sense of uh, progress. And they were the, they were the better team in the game as well. Um, they probably should have won it. They very nearly threw it away, as Rob says. But um, Paul Ince in particular, I remember. I mean, I haven't seen the game for twenty three years either, but I remember on the night thinking that he- he had an amazing game. He is uh, so underrated. As an as an England player, particularly in big
2: games, and we'll talk about it in the next pod, Argentina, he's so underrated. Just one thing, I think that's a really good point about Le Tournois, which kind of helped you feel like going somewhere, but you say they were friendly. So for this to happen, to finish, I'm trying to think, when did Italy, England last qualify for a major tournament by finishing above a team of the calibre and prestige of Italy? You'd be going what? back decades, wouldn't you?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, they finished uh, ahead of Germany to get to the two thousand and two World Cup, but Germany had gone. No, much I mean, that
2: yeah, I mean, bef- yeah. before ninety-seven. I mean, oh, before, hence yeah, the euphoria.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, I think there's a bit of uh, there's a bit of that. So we'll we'll leave that as kind of uh, you guys forty fifteen up on me, but me about to return, sir. It's but we'll go-
2: It's not fair having two against one in two. <laughs> <so. laughs>
0: I'm a scouser. The whole world set up two against one, or at least <laughs> it is if you listen to scousers. But that's another story. Um, just lost about half the listeners there. Um, so we'll go back, Rob, to uh, the the rest of the qualifying tournament, and you were picking out uh, some of the uh, nations.
2: Yeah, well, Portugal's golden generation, uh, as they would become known. Maybe they weren't. So they missed out. Actually, they finished behind Ukraine and Germany. Uh, Ukraine then lost in a playoffs. Croatia. Portugal paid for drawing 0-0 away to Northern Ireland and Armenia, which is. Um, an extraordinary result in the late 90s. Uh, a few other bits. Venable, Terry Venables Australia were 2-0 up to Iran. And I think they ended up drawing 2 all in a home leg and lost, missed out on away goals. That was a bit of a shock. Ireland lost in a playoff to Belgium. I, I'm pretty sure this is the night when Tony Cascarino tried to fight the whole team. At the final whistle, I'm sure I'm sure this is in his book. I should have checked it and I, didn't, I forgot. But I'm pretty sure he, they were in a huddle celebrating. And he pretty much went out round offering each and every one out. And they all just kind of looked at him critically. So he he sloped off. Um Yugoslavia beat Hungary 12-1 on aggregate in the playoff, which I'd completely forgotten. Um, which is kind of quite a I suppose quite a poignant result at the end of the 20th century, last one of the twentieth century, kind of um symbolized how far Hungary had fallen from fifty-four and even sixty-six when they were a fine side. And um even in 82 when they weren't so good, they won 10-1. It just, it was kind of the the final um, nail in the coffin almost for Hungarian international football. Um, yeah, those are probably the main talking points. I think I'm sure there are others that I, that I have kind of haven't picked up or had forgotten, but most of the others looked um, f- not like hugely surprising. Giddy you almost qualified, but it it wasn't quite as um, close as the table looks. I think, I think they finished two points behind Nigeria, but, but it was never actually that close. Um, so yeah, those are probably the big the big stories, and we should say that uh, it was first thirty two team World Cup, mm. um, which is a load of bollocks, but you know that's that's worth noting. Um, <laughs> uh,
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna come to that, but I, I just want to reflect there that Yugoslavia. It surprised me that the team was called Yugoslavia. Of course, Croatia also got to the uh, final, so it was a, a kind of rump Yugoslavia. Con- <laughs> comprising, I suspect, mainly so Serbs.
2: When, when did it change? Because Yugoslavia played at Euro 2000, didn't they? I, when did it I, become... I not that it matters, but I'm pretty sure it, they did. But you're it was, right.
0: It was a slow kind of fracturing, and there was yeah. kind of former, former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia and things like this. But um, it, I don't think it became Serbia, because there may have been Argi um to quote uh, Bill McLaren going on, uh twist, <laughs> Uh, around Belgrade at that time, I'm not absolutely that, certain.
2: I thought that was your Yugoslavian accent. <laughs> glad, you, glad you
0: clarified. But, to, but uh, yeah, to 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 see an entity called Yugoslavia in 1998 sort of um, jolted me a, a little bit. Um, but I, I want to just draw on that that uh, 32 team World Cup because again, I have somewhat. Uh,
2: oh, we do, don't we?
1: Yeah,
0: yeah we, I have I have different views, but I want I want get Mike's first of the uh, the first 32 nation World Cup.
1: Well, I I think the interesting thing about this one is that they added eight teams in for 98. um, And when they went from 16 to 24 in 1982, most of the extra places went to European teams, I think five of them. Um, But for this World Cup, um, with the 32 teams, what this meant was there were five African teams, uh, I think four from the Asian Confederation and three from CONCACAF. So this time, the extra places... um, you know, favoured confederations that don't haven't hadn't previously had much of a look in at the World Cup. Um, so I think that's a good thing. But um, the first three World Cups I'd seen were all 2014 World Cups, and I don't know, just maybe it's just the first one you remember. That just that felt like hand and glove. It felt like the perfect size, really, um, and it did feel a bit bloated. I think um, this one before kickoff. I, rem- I remember thinking that, it just, and just you know, there's less time to engage with that many teams, to find out about that many teams. So it did at the time seem to me to be, I thought, too much.
2: The one the one advantage, apart from Mike makes a really good point actually about distribution, the one advantage of 32 is it's a cleaner format. So it's just top two mm. go through. You don't get a slightly messy third place. I, I'm kind of torn on the third place because I quite like the, the kind of infinite permutations and a late drama you can get, but it's, it's slightly cheap compared, there's a, there's a, a purity with 32 or obviously with 16, which I think is slightly too few. It's interesting, you might be an exception, Gary, but I think generally Mike makes a really good point. It's almost the first World Cup you see that sticks to you, that's the four, because I know people older than me um, who all believe in 16 team World Cups. Um, I would probably say 24 is fine um, and I think the younger generation would say 32 and the the kids of 2030 whatever will probably say 64 is the right number but um but it sounds like you're the exception gary
0: well i wrote a piece in the guardian two or three years ago um making the case for a 48 team world cup and i remember the 32 teams here because it felt like it was a a world festival you know you you did have the smaller federations the traditionally weaker federations represented and they gave a decent account for themselves of themselves especially mm. if you consider it first time round okay you know they they didn't actually um produce that that much in the way of qualifiers for the knockout stages but you've got to give these uh, these no, nations I times to grow yeah, yeah. I, I think there are two other elements that come through um with with a larger uh, tournaments particularly in the 22 intervening years is we now see footballers from all over the world playing in the elite leagues who can um give a decent account of themselves at a world cup i mean i don't think we're going to get sort of honduras losing 10 nil or whatever it was in 1974 so i think i think the, the nobody would embarrass themselves in a 48 team uh Club World Cup, but there's what? another there's another element which has only come to mind really when I'm speaking to you, is that there are so many players um, in Europe especially who are qualified for, for two nations, particularly one thinks of France and Belgium and maybe even the, the UK and they often they often um, choose to play uh, with a chance of playing for the the European option. Often they're born in Europe. They've got every right to play for their European nation. But wouldn't it be great if some of them did go and play for their parents or perhaps their birthplace, you know, and – teams like Mali could draw on the diaspora of Mali to to put a team together. And I think if they had a chance, more of a chance of playing in the World Cup, I think we'd see more of these these players um, from the African diaspora in particular, um, playing uh, playing for their, their nations and playing in the World Cup. And instead of picking up, sort of seven appearances, five as a substitute for France or Belgium. They play 70 or 80 games for Senegal, but particularly Mali, Mauritania, uh, Morocco, Tunisia, uh, countries like this. And I think the football and the World Cup, perhaps after a period of adjustment, would benefit from that kaleidoscope that we would see in a 48-team World Cup. Bit tricky on arranging the qualifications, mm. but it shouldn't be beyond the be, 10 now.
2: How many? Uh, what do you think is the minimum number of games every qualifying team should play? Because well, it's well, two, isn't
0: there? Well, I did. Yeah, I, I did do it as as um, as groups of three. Uh, that was my suggestion, which I'd pinched from somebody else. But the, it it does mean that there's a match where one of the sides knows what it needs to do. But I still don't think it's impossible to pull that together. And in that plan, I think there was it was the same number of weeks required to deliver the uh, World Cup finals but there was actually one or two matches fewer in the, in the plan that came up because I you don't I... have dead rubbers in uh, in 14 four groups
2: it's a good point about not having dead um dead rubbers i just i worry about four years work for two games
0: mm-hmm. yeah I but it's know, it's, but... it's modern it's modern travel these days as well i mean sometimes people would say oh you know it's a long way to go just to play just to play uh uh, two games, but you know you can you can straddle the world pretty easily these no, days. First class no, traveling. Oh, all I'm not that. talking
2: about. Yeah, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about more the kind of emotional investment. Almost that you you know you build up something like that, and it's almost. But anyway, we're we're getting yeah. <laughs> we're getting wildly yeah. off piece, but it's an interesting topic. <laughs> it um, is
0: an interesting. Yeah. I
2: don't like three team groups, though. I don't know. Even you go back to um
1: the 1982 World
2: Cup. I, I don't know. I don't like. But anyway, that's another nah. thing. Yeah, yeah, I think if you if you've no, worked
1: for. Sorry, if you've worked for four years to get to a world cup i mean you can't just be there for four days and then you know go home you have to be there you have to have four team groups i think and um i've I've come round to the way of thinking now that i'm you know i'm fine with thirty two um you that's can... that's, bi- that's big of me isn't it <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I'm okay with the thirty two team world cup but also i mean i'm i I'm really behind you know it being a world cup. As in world, you know, yeah. world, you know, yeah, inviting more teams. I mean, to well, like that's that. the thing because well, I mean, people even France us,
2: we'll talk about some of the non-European nations who mm. weren't particularly good, but some of the European nations were absolute gash. So it's not that the old kind of assumptions that the weakest teams would always be non-European. Even by ninety-eight, that's simply not the yeah. case. Yeah, no,
1: actually, that's... if I could um, sort of make one final point about, there was some in- incredible haughty arrogance around in the last World Cup when England beat Panama six-one mm. about you know. Or what are they doing? It like forgetting what Panama actually yeah, did yeah, to, yeah. to get to get to that World Cup in the first place. You know, they knocked out the USA, didn't they? In the, in the final, yes, they um, did. They did the final qualifier, and no one would bat an eyelid if the USA had qualified instead of them. So, no. um, yeah, that that attitude I don't like that comes along with it.
0: So, no. Yeah, my 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 final word on this is that one of the groups, if you had a, a kind of. Um, seeding for the three by six top sixteen, mid-16, 16, lower sixteen. I think from memory England could go in a group with Poland and Senegal. You're you gonna tell me that we don't want to see that as a as a World Cup group, but um we've got to do something to get Scotland back into the final stages of the world <laughs> tournament, haven't we? Right. Uh,
1: as uh, long so as, speaking
0: um, of that, yeah. speaking of segue. that group, group yeah. A yeah. <laughs> Oh, Gary. <laughs> uh-huh. So I think Mike, you're kicking us off with Group A, aren't you? Uh,
1: yeah. Well, this is. I mean, this this starts with probably what Craig Brown has called the biggest game in Scotland's history. Um, you know, there's the two massive games at the World Cup, really, the opening one and the the final. Um, you know, they've got the big, uh, they've got the biggest sort of audiences in the world. So this is, uh, yeah, it's absolutely huge for Scotland to contest the. Uh, that opening match in Paris um, against this uh, Brazil team. that I've, I've never known any team go into a World Cup with so much hype around them as this uh, Brazil team. I mean, that, that was mostly generated by Nike. And, you know, they, they, I think they uh, block-sponsored Brazil, the whole team, didn't they, as mm. of 1996. I did a piece on this once. In 1997, they played 24 internationals. mm Brazil because they were world champions you know they didn't have to qualify and um Nike had all these stipulations in this multi-million dollar contract that you know certain or a certain amount of select players had to be available for each and every international um they were pairing together you know Ronaldo who was you know the the next big thing who'd exploded after um you know Euro 96 and stuff he was up front with Romario and know you they were just expected to be this wonder team. They had that advert, didn't they, in the airport where they're you know, uh, doing keepy-uppy and Roberto Carlos is bending the ball around the plane and everything. And he, of course, had scored that great free kick uh, with the outside of his foot a year earlier in the tour. Was. So, um, yeah, Scotland, it must have felt like the, you know they're going in to face demigods in a way in that opening game. Um, yeah, and I, I think... I, did, I yeah, I went the bit I did on this. The eight of the Scotland team were in their thirties by that point as well. So this is kind of the last stand for that Scottish generation that had been to all the um the tournaments in the nineties. Uh and and the, you know, they had them uh, they had them level pegging going into I think it was in the last ten minutes Tom Boyd scores an own goal. Sort of really just tragic comic way to lose the game. Um But then Scotland had got a really dodgy penalty as well, I think uh. Yeah. Was it John Collins who uh, sort of ostentatiously threw himself to the floor and uh, collapsed it was, in a th- heap.
2: It might have been Kevin Gallagher. It was Collins, oh, was it who, it was Collins who scored. Oh, Collins I'm not sure, scored. didn't he? Sorry, yeah. But, but you're right. Scotland played well in that game, though. Um, Brazil didn't. They I mean, did, even yeah. Brazil's first goal was a little bit. Cesar Sempoe scored his shoulder from a corner, um was a bit um, scabby. Yeah, Scotland, Scotland were, were not quite equal, but they weren't, you know, a draw wouldn't have flattered them, I don't think.
0: Well I um, I was amazed in writing a, a review of um, the World Cup Panini uh, stickers <laughs> which you can read at nessandolma.pod.com um, looking at that uh, those faces on the Scotland team because you know you go through the early 60s and right up until about 1970 and there there are these These faces look out at you from the Panini stickers of of men who look in their mid-40s because sort of everybody looked old then. And then, you know, the haircuts start changing and there's some youthful looks coming along. And then you turn the page to Scotland in 98 and you've got these old men again looking at you. And I thought, oh, it's just, you know, sort of the tough paper rounds around the gobbles or something. But um, sure enough, when I checked, they were an old side. And it's very surprising to go to a go to a, a tournament that you hope you're going to go deep in with with so many players well into their 30s and having to put out 11s without any much in the way of balance at all. Maybe, but at least he didn't lose 5-2.
2: Maybe what happened subsequently kind of validated that decision. It didn't have a huge amount coming through. I mean, there was good players in that team. Um, Colin Hendry, I mean, a few more parts of them were past their best, but uh, Colin Hendry, John Collins, Paul Lambert, Gordon Jury, I thought, was a really underrated player. Kevin Gallagher, also um, Craig Burley, you know Colin Cordell It, was, it wasn't a bad side, um, but yeah, they obviously went the way of all, the, all their ancestors. Sadly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they did. So the, the other qualifiers we should have a look at were, were Norway. I mean, Rob, uh, Norwegian side that qualified by one point from a Moroccan side that uh, that rather padded their qualification by uh, turning over a tired and dispirited Scott, Scotland side 3-0 in the last game.
2: Well, yes, it's worth talking. Morocco-Norway, first game was a 2 draw, which ultimately became really important, probably best remembered for a great goal by... Um... Mustafa Hadji, who ended up at Coventry, step over and lashed the ball in. Then, then Brazil spanked Morocco. Um, Ronaldo scored his first goal. Really nice goal. Um, Scotland drew with Norway, which actually left it quite open because I think everyone thought Brazil, who were already through, would beat Norway. And therefore, Morocco-Scotland was winner-takes-all. In fact, what happened was Morocco stuffed Scotland. Uh, played really well, actually, Morocco. some exhilarating attacking play. Um, and Brazil were 1-0 up against Norway with a few minutes to go. Uh, and that was that, Morocco were through. But then Tori Andre Flo, who ran Junior bayano was getting quite a lot of um, publicity at the time, because a, a beast of a centre-back. Torre Andre Flo ran him ragged all night, scored a really good goal to equalise. Uh, and then with not long at all left, I think it was about like two or three minutes, um, Norway got what looked like a dodgy penalty. Um in fact, everyone thought it was a dodgy penalty. It was only I think it was only the next day they found an a, a really unlikely angle that showed actually Baiano, who'd been basically run to distraction, was pulling his shirt. Clearly, it was a really good decision. Um, Rekdal, the guy who famously scored that half volley at um, mm. Wembley in 92 that kind of start beginning at the end for Graham Taylor, where he scored a, a penalty. So that put Norway through. And the interesting thing is it didn't matter to Brazil because it would already won the group, but Norway had... Beaten them a year earlier, 4-2 in Oslo, which ended Brazil's long unbeaten run, I think it was 40-odd games. Um, so it was quite, quite an unlikely nemesis. But yeah, it, it was quite sad. Morocco, I think when their finalists went, they all thought they were through. And there were the usual kind of scenes of players crying on the pitch. It was quite sad, actually, because they played some lovely stuff to beat Scotland, to so, so I think actually, again, talking about the kind of prejudice and assumptions, I think most people... And I probably include myself in this actually, as an ignorant Egypt at the time, thought Scotland would beat Morocco, not comfortably, but probably thought they would. In fact, they were battered. They ended up with 10 mm. men. Burley was sent off, um, and they were just completely outclassed. Um, but yeah, Norway went through. They hadn't really done a huge amount. Uh, they weren't much of an upgrade on the team that stunk USA 94 out, but they did have Flo, who was in his peak years, I think for three years. And I'm not quite sure what happened to him. That's another pod. Um, Mm. I thought he was a fantastic centre forward, a pain in the arse, a clinical finisher, never stopped running, quite intelligent. Um, And yeah, he basically, 10 minutes of brilliance from him kind of got them through.
0: Well, before I come to Mike for more wonderfully technical and uh, <laughs> and uh, coherent uh, sure analysis of the football. <laughs> um my observation of Morocco 2 Norway 2 is that Norway's goals were scored by Eggen and Chippo and I was a bit disappointed that Berger <laughs> didn't uh, get on the plate as oh, well oh. Since, or step up to the plate. Yeah. Oh, I missed time the gag. <laughs> missed time the gag. But there there we are. Uh, you uh, are yeah, you're in good company
1: helped. there, Gary, because um, yeah, Terry Venables made that music hall joke on the <laughs> ITV <laughs> coverage uh, that very night. Yeah, so, yeah. Are, stand, is, standing on the shoulders of giants. Did, did yeah,
0: any, yeah. The only thing
2: you you need to add, Gary, is that Venables cackle at the end. Yeah, <laughs> I can hear I it now.
0: And that, yeah. and the uh, the cheeky Cockney grin, and said, uh, "Well, he was an ex stand up, wasn't he? As along with lots yeah. of other things, novelist, stand up, England coach." But uh, let's get back to the proper stuff, uh, Mike. What any further observations on? On, on Group One, uh, Group A, I should say, there?
1: Yeah, well, uh, I guess one thing would be that Brazil's, I mean, although they were already through, it was Brazil's first group stage defeat since the 1966 World Cup, since they'd lost to Portugal, that, um, that 3-1 game where Eusebio took them apart. So yeah, 32 years without a group stage defeat. And, you know, they'd been to every World Cup as well. So that was um, a bit of a landmark. I, just, I thought Norway were just, I remember the end of that game, or seeing the last ten minutes of that game, and that they were um, when they, when they were forced to go for it in Norway, you know, they can really play like they tore Andre Flo as, as Rob said is a great player. Solskjaer came on, you know, they had Leonardson, they had Rekdal. They had Make, some really good players yeah. and it kinda of, it kinda of frustrates me about them. I and mean, the way it frustrates me about you know, the way Jack Charlton's Ireland had Sheedy and McGrath and Houghton and Aldridge that that you would play so limited, really. You just but, seem capable of so much more with the players you've got. I always found that frustrating about Norway, and then they but, they immediately reverted to type against Italy.
0: Didn't Edgel Olson though? You know, didn't he enjoy that? You know, sort of getting the ball into the Pomo, the position of Maximo. Oh yeah, yeah, he was a, a, very a long Hughes. one to yeah. to yeah. a six foot five winger to head it back into the middle. And one all
2: of that. one other thing I should have mentioned: uh, Mike, right to talk about all the hype about Brazil and and Ronaldo in particular. I mean, he would had that astonishing season. at... Barcelona, a good first season at Inter and there was one, he's got a good goal against Morocco, but probably the most exciting kind of YouTubeable bit he did was um to make a goal for Bebeto in that game. I, I forget the defender, but he absolutely skinned him with his usual step overs and speed and then just flicked it across, give Bebeto an open goal. And it it just kind of summed some we'll talk about him probably more in the um the knockout stages, but he was yeah. just he was absolutely exhilarating to watch. He really well,
0: was. I couldn't agree with that more. There are some players where you shouldn't believe the hype, but when it comes to Ronaldo... Um, do believe the hype? He yeah, really was peak that
2: pre, pre-injury Ronaldo.
0: That is pre-injury Ronaldo. But, but That's indeed. another discussion. Yeah. So Group B, uh, Rob, you're going to kick us off with Group B. Yes. Uh, Italy, uh, England's non-nemesis, uh, end up qualifying. So and and Chile are uh, accompany them.
2: Yeah. Well. And um, yeah, and the other two teams, Cameroon, and Austria, Chile were a kind of team to watch mainly because of their front two. Uh, Marcelo Salas and even Zamorano. Salas had scored a, a glorious volley at Wembley when they beat England two 0 in the February. I think uh, he'd been linked with Man United quite a lot. He was kind of an emerging player, um,
0: and that was a shock, you know. The, the, the oh, public huge. and the yeah. press thought, you know, we're just going to tear up and, and roll Chile because yeah. they're you know a small country with earthquakes. And, yeah. uh, instead, it's, they had world class forwards all who the focus, demonstrated just how good they were.
2: Yeah, it was it was almost a unique goal. I think from memories on long ball over the top, controlled on his thigh and volleyed it in one movement from the edge of the box. Fantastic goal. Yeah, all the hype was about, uh, all the focus was on Michael Owen making his debut at the age of 12 or whatever it was. But yeah, so Chile did qualify, but actually it was quite tight. They didn't win a game in the end. Um, First game of the group was fascinating actually. Italy drew two all with Chile, uh, battered them early on, Vieri scored, and Salah scored two either side of halftime. One was an immense header. Um, And then Italy got an iffy Penalty with five minutes to go. Uh, and what I love about this is Roberto Badger won it, but it, it was if he was given for handball, but uh, it, was a, it was almost like a, a VAR handball. But the Badger, who, of course, had missed the final penalty in 1994, took it himself. Uh, and it keeper got a hand to it, but it was accurate and well-struck enough to go in. And you think of some penalties, Stuart Pearce is the obvious example, the kind of public exorcism of the previous disappointment. Um, whereas the badger of just this kind of quiet dignity just ran back to the centre spot, I found that absolutely fascinating. Um, the other thing about the game, that I think people always remember, is Zamorano belting out the national anthem. Mm. Like it was, a, it was showed all the time um, with like unprecedented gusto. But yeah, so Chile went through by drawing all three games. Austria drew. Austria scored in the last minute of all their games, actually to draw with Cameroon. One all in the first game. That's worth mentioning mainly because of a great goal by. Um, Pierre and Janko, is it the Janka? Basically just a marauding run from the halfway line, beat people and smashed it in. Uh Italy beat Cameroon comfortably. Cameroon had I think I think it was three, maybe even four players sent off. And just as an aside, I looked at this. There were more players sent off in the group stage, or as many sent off, sixteen in the group stage, as had been sent off in the entirety of any previous World Cup. Um yeah, Cameroon had at least three. Um and basically, it all came down to Austria, as I say, stank the place out, didn't win a game, scored two last-minute equalisers and a last-minute consolation against Italy. It came down to Cameroon-Chile. Chile, in the last game, Chile needed the draw. And Cameroon ended 1-0, but Cameroon had two goals disallowed. What, one of them really, it was really dodgy. I, in fact, I have no idea what it was disallowed for, frankly. Um, so Chile sneaked through. Cameroon also had two players set off in that game. Um, Rigor, best song. I think, became the first player to be sent off twice at a World Cup, um, which is quite good going because he's still only about 21 at that stage. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't a great good. Italy were comfortable. Chile were kind of, I remember Chile really fondly from that World Cup. Yeah, they actually didn't do that much. They good draw with Italy and then drew with two not great teams. Uh, I think it's just the, the power of... Um, Zamorano and Salas had so much charisma um, that I think you kind of remember... remember almost as if they achieved more than that she did however maybe it's because also as you say they won at Wembley and maybe that kind of um,
0: changes the the, memory a little bit the two goals they got in their opening fixture against Italy it's worth reading up the Italian defence, which had Gianluca Pagliuca in goal. Uh, Paolo Maldini, you may have heard of him. Fabio Cannavaro is handy. Uh, Alessandro Costa-Curta and Alessandro Nesta. (laughs) You might not not get two goals against them in a season, and they got two goals in five minutes wrapped around half-time. So, uh, you know, it was... It was uh, it was pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, Chile had and always has one of the great kits in world football because you're not supposed to put the blue and the red together. But oh, my! In my early days of playing Sabutio, God, I loved it when I had Chile in the box. I tell you, um, <laughs> Mike, uh, Group B. anything yeah, not add? much to
1: not much to add really. Uh, really pleased for for who um you know lost his lost his way a little bit at club level after um. After USA ninety four, he transferred to Milan, that didn't really work out. But he he rebuilt his career in a, a, a Bologna for the season before this World Cup. Had a great season and yeah, just have that cathar- the catharsis of that penalty. So I don't I don't think he'd taken one in the intervening time. Um even at club level, I remember reading somewhere. Um well, yeah, the- so that was great. I mean he, was, just- he was such a
2: likable player, wasn't he? Yeah,
1: but and just the-, the kind of quiet Sorry, go <laughs>
0: no, no, you make, you make.
1: Um, yeah, and as Rob said, I just like yeah, the the you know the quiet dignity of like you know the internal celebration rather than uh, uh, the, the kind of Pierce the roaring don't, kind don't, of. Uh...
2: Don't get me wrong, I love the Pierce one as well. Oh yeah, and yeah. I suspect but, um... in the same position. I, I'd want to do the Baggio, but I suspect I'd probably do the Pierce.
0: <laughs> wasn't, it, wasn't the divine ponytail practicing meditation and Buddhism was, yeah, at the time? Yeah, I think mm. so. Yeah, I remember that, that. That was the first. The
2: two people who, funnily enough, I've just I've been look, looking into Buddhism quite a lot in the last few months. Um, but the first two people who made me aware of it were Roberto Baggio and Richard Gere. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why that stays in my <laughs> mind. But yeah. The existence of Buddhism. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: well, uh, you've been eating too much cheese before going to bed. But uh, we'll squeeze in, um, before we we take a break, you won't hear it at home, but uh, we're going to take a a break to replenish the vocal cords. But we're going to squeeze in perhaps one of the more predictable groups, which is Group C, which includes the... uh, the uh, home team, uh, France, the hosts, and uh, and uh, Denmark, South Africa, and Saudi Arabia. So, uh, Rob, it's a cruise, really, for France.
2: Oh, it's me again. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, Yeah it was. They won. Did they win all three games? Yes, they did. Um, points of interest. Zidane being sent off for a stamp against Saudi Arabia was interesting. Um, there were a lot of young... I mean, but we'll talk more again about France. In, in stack they had this sensational defence. They had a bit of a problem up front, even though actually they scored nine goals in this group. But they didn't really have a settled centre-forward. They had people like Henri coming on a sub or coming from wide. Um, first game, they beat South Africa 3-0. And poor um, Pierre Issa scored two own goals. I think one of them was given as an Henry goal, but it's an own goal. And the other thing is, it was on his home ground, um, which is very harsh. Um, yeah, I don't know what to say. Denmark were... Fading, uh, Michael Lounge would come back, which gave them a bit, a bit of heft, although he was getting on a bit. Um, but they were kind of comfortably the second best team in the group. Um, Both brothers yeah. played. Yeah, of course. So you're Michael and Brian. Yeah, and Schmeichel obviously, who was uh, kind of still pretty close to his peak. But yeah, it was a pretty underwhelming group. I mean, it was a very comfortable start for for France. Um, and that was probably quite important because it was they'd invested so much in it, kind of culturally and historically as well. Because it was there were obvious parallels with '84 when they won the European Championship in France. Um, and I, 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 there are I, there would be people who know a lot more than me about it, but I think it was quite it, the whole um, kind of France needed a success, particularly given the the makeup of the team and how cosmopolitan it was. They kind of needed that because there was a lot of um, unrest at the time, I think, and that would obviously the team would improve through the knockout stages and get the whole momentum that you get as hosts. This was essentially a really comfortable start. The only thing, the Zidane thing is quite interesting because obviously we know how his career ended at the World Cup um, and he always had that rage in him. Um, as we saw him in mean, I think they were, what were they, 3 nil up, 2 nil up? Like, why, why are you getting sent off for that? I, I, think, I think he said that there was some kind of um, abuse of his upbringing or something. I, I forget, but even so, it was a very strange uh, incident. At the time, it seemed like a one-off moment of madness, as people say, but actually we we realised subsequently, because even for Juventus, he got sent off a few times that he actually did have that brooding uh, rage within him.
0: Well, just before we, we go to Mike, because um, we will cover France more, obviously, as they... Uh moved to to paris and the eventual uh, winners um, i was in paris uh, a month or so after the the world cup i went there to see the uh, closing stage of the tour de france 98 when there was uh, there was you'd see more cyclists queuing at the uh, traffic lights in tooting broadway because of the festina affair so that was a bit of a damp squib but the um the phrase at the time i think was was blanc beurre noir it, it may not have been noir but what it meant was the uh the um, kind of cosmopolitan nature of the side, the, uh, the those of Arabic heritage, those of Black African heritage, and those uh, of uh, White European heritage, and you saw this absolutely everywhere. And again, going through the um, the panini stickers, um, it's it's uh, it's noticeable how um, the diversity comes through in France, probably more clearly and earlier than it does in other nations you've got belgium coming through a little bit later holland as well and then and then perhaps later still england but um the 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 drawing on the different communities within france although of course france does not accept different communities in france everyone is is french um the uh that kind of benefit of that it really shines in here and that links into the academy that was set up under houllier and you've got um thierry henry and uh, david trezeguet who were uh, roommates at um Fontainebleau, was it claire Clairefontaine uh, claire fontaine <laughs> i got the, i got a palace instead of a, <laughs> a, a citadel um and, uh, you know, that, that, that comes through there. And The last thing I'll say is that uh, I was listening to Talk Sport a few days ago and uh, they were saying that you, you just can't be certain when you when you buy players from Europe. I mean, who knew that uh, that uh, Thierry Henry uh, had the potential he had when Arsenal bought him? Well, if you'd watched the 98 World Cup, you'd have a bit of an idea. <laughs> I it's in
2: in it. fairness, it, he'd been terrible at Juventus the year after, but, but you, you're you right, Um Yeah, Yeah, he scored
0: some very Thierry Henry-type goals in that uh, that group stage. But, Mike, um, you'll wrap up this group?
1: Yeah, it's just a bit of a cakewalk for France, wasn't it? It's it's the kind of flip of that argument of, um, you know, you have to start slowly to win a World Cup. I think they won, what, 3-0, 4-0 and, um, you know, 2-1. And that was most of their goals in the tournament until they got to the uh, final. But, um, yeah, it's always kind of fascinating, I think, following the, the progress of hosts in a World Cup or a european championship uh, if they 've got if they 've got a realistic chance of winning it as well, I think it, it adds quite a lot to the tournament I think um especially if you know, if they can go all the way or, or you know to the last four um, and you know I think you 'll see that when we get to Qatar in uh, in uh, two years' time the kind of the, the negative effects of that not happening maybe but um it's yeah this is, yeah this is just one of those um Kind of, there's a there's a couple of groups like this actually, uh, and we'll, we'll we'll come to some uh, shortly where um it it panned out exactly how you how you kind of thought it would really. You thought France uh, France and Denmark would um would get through. Um, yeah, there's not not a lot to uh, to add really. Other than that, you could put it on the wall chart beforehand.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you could, and and that France team. I mean, we will say cover it in more in more detail. But I think a few. I think, oh, sorry, a few years, I think a few years ago, I was listing the the three best national teams that I'd ever seen, and I had them third. And I definitely think the '98 side would beat the uh, winners in 2018. I mean, it was an outstanding mm. side of of players who think, were young and hungry.
2: I think the 2000 team. When I'm not sure
0: about '98, but that's another argument. Yeah. I was going to gonna yeah, say yeah, I mean, talk, they talking two, about
2: yeah. putting things on the wall chart. Actually. you you certainly couldn't have put Group D's results on the wall chart beforehand. Well, uh-huh. we'll we'll
0: come we'll uh-huh. come to them in in a moment. So, Mike, we move to uh, Group D, uh, one with perhaps the more of the surprise results in some ways, but perhaps not so much in the rear view. But certainly, as uh, as we we set out looking at the tournament, the uh, the two qualifiers probably were less likely from this group than than from some of the others. So, do you want to talk us through it?
1: Yeah, this was a box of fireworks. This group um, <laughs> started with um, so I think the first game was Paraguay and Bulgaria, which is the it's the World Cup debut of uh, Jose Luis Silva in goal <laughs> for Paraguay, who's you know, quite a character. Turned up with uh, I don't know if you remember his lucky coin that he took around with him and he yeah. no. put in the uh... what was this? Well, he had a he had a lucky coin that was, like, it was the size of a dustbin lid. It was absolutely <laughs> absolutely massive. And I think he used to kiss it and put it in the goal for kind of good luck. But um, he very nearly scored a free kick in the Bulgaria yeah, I game. That. Uh, he was tipped over the bar. No, I, I still think today no goalkeepers ever scored an open
0: play at a World Cup. So he, he was very close to being. Um,
2: Didn't he score about fifty
1: goals in his career or
0: something? Oh, I think it was more than that. Was I it? think Jamie Vardy needs another six to get past him. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah and then uh, i think I think it was the day after that was the the first great game of this World Cup, which was Spain and Nigeria. I just remember that's one of the games that really sticks out in my mind it was an absolute joy it was to watch that great
2: game. it was Saturday lunchtime, um, wasn't it
1: it was yeah yeah, and I think i I was in university at the time and I'd, I think my exams had finished on the Friday afternoon, and then I just had this kind of blissful month <laughs> to, to just you know get get drunk and watch the world Cup oh um. Wow. Everything about this game, you know, it was Spain, you know, Spain, as we used to know and love them, turning up with a brilliant side, chock full of great players, but then, you know, making a complete bollocks of it and then got, got <laughs> out in the air, yeah, got out in the first round. But um, yeah, that game was settled by a stunning goal from um, Sunday Olise, just a half volley that went past. The Zaretta had a bit of a nightmare in this game in goal for Spain. Um, he chucked one in his near post as well, I think, to bring it... Uh, to bring it level, and um, but even Spain still should have got through. Really, I mean they they got to the yeah. uh, last game and they beat Bulgaria six uh, one. Mean, Bulgaria just given up by this point, um, and I mean they were nothing like the team that had, um, had been so brilliant in nineteen ninety four. They just seemed to have fossilized in those. <laughs> Four years, and yeah, you know, the the point I made about Panama earlier really being hosed down six one by England. I mean, no, no, no one really cares or questions Bulgaria's World Cup place when, uh, you know, they're getting thrashed six one like this. But um, yeah, it was it was the kind of game where you, you saw Spain play like they did that night. And You just think, well, I mean, they could be in with a bit of a chance here, but then they went out because uh, you know Paraguay got the result they needed. Um, they beat Nigeria in the final game and went through in their place. So, yeah, yeah, that was the kind of story out of this group, really, was that um, Nigeria can't really add into what they'd, they'd done in uh, 1994 in the USA, sort of backing up that good tournament they'd had there. And, yeah, Spain, the first sort of big heavyweight casualty of the World Cup. Yeah, the result that
2: killed Spain really wasn't the Nigeria one. It was <clears throat> the only draw with Paraguay in the second game mm. when they were dreadful, Um because that left them basically at the mercy of... Because Nigeria had already gone through, so I think they rested a lot of players with the last 16 in mind, uh, and it meant it was out of Spain's hands. Yeah, Nigeria, terrific, weren't they? I remember at the time, I mean, it was so I think there was so, there was there there maybe a slightly patronising attitude but towards African teams, but I think there was also a hell of a lot of goodwill on the back of what Morocco had done in 86, Cameroon, especially in 1990, and Nigeria in and I remember thinking, not that Nigeria could win it, but that they were potential, maybe even semi-finalists, um, they, mm. were, they had so many fantastic um, players and, uh, yeah, it didn't quite work out like that, sadly.
0: Yeah, that Nigerian side, I, I remember, they, they didn't knock it sideways very often. As soon as a player got the ball, he got his head up and he was looking to take on whoever was in front of him. They were so positive and quick and, you know, prepared to to give a goal, to score a goal. Um, terribly exciting team. Um, I mean, I remember looking at that Spanish team and, a. Uh, uh, speaking to a friend of mine who's uh, of Spanish extraction um, around the 2008 uh, World Cup and saying that, you know, at last, you know, Spain were getting it together in 2008 because until then Spain did look, you know, kind of a a bolted together side. You know, there's the historical kind of enmity between Real Madrid and Barcelona, but that's actually, you know, that, that goes back centuries and there's the, the Basque country and so on and, and Spain looked like a, a, a it looked like a, a team that was bolted together out of disparate people who were all sort of slightly resentfully sort of looking at the Spanish flag and thinking, is that really mine? Now that may be unfair, but for years and years that's how Spain seemed to play. They seemed to be less than the sum of their parts. And then when they did become the sum of their parts, what's some twenty years later, we then we really saw the potential of the uh, outstanding footballers that Spain has always produced. And obviously um, that came through in club football, albeit supplemented by uh, players from other nations. So it it didn't surprise me that that Spain managed to find a way to fail to qualify in this uh, World Cup because that's what they seem to do. 10 years later by the way but it's Was funny it it? yeah, 10, okay, but, right, but the
2: older you get the time kind of just i think you see it's like differently it's like if you said every time i for example if it's i don't know 25th anniversary of eric hansen doing such and such or whatever or um mike allerton doing such i do a double take think that like 25 years so yeah, it's funny isn't it you would never get it i don't think you would have. Made that mistake in two thousand and eight, into so twenty years ago. It's no. just—it's strange how the brain works,
0: yeah. or, or doesn't, or doesn't <laughs> increasingly. So <laughs> we'll we'll leave perhaps one of the more predictable groups, and we'll uh, move forward to Group uh, E uh, in nineteen ninety eight, which uh, perhaps is uh, somewhat appropriate. Um, a, a fantastic Dutch team here, uh, Rob. Yes. Um,
2: um... But I think I uh, no, it was. They were a they were they were just a typical Dutch team, so smooth in possession and so easy to watch and they had some beautiful players. The Boer Brothers at their peak, uh, emerging Yapstam, Seydorf, Overmars, Bergkamp, Cliver, so on and so on. But they actually I think they won only three games out of seven in the tournament, and two of those were last minute goals. So while they were a really likable team and were certainly good enough to win it. It wasn't an unmitigated triumph. However, the group itself... Um, so in this group, for example, they only won one game. They beat South Korea 5-0. They drew with Belgium and Mexico. Um, there's quite a few interesting little stories in here. So the nil nil draw with Belgium in their opening game. Clive was sent off um, after... Bit, I forget who it was. One of the Belgian players provoked him into raising his hands. And, and it was either... Because Clive had a few things, didn't he? He'd, he'd been accused of rape, I think, that year. And he'd also... Had a fatal car crash a few years earlier, so I think one mm. or the other was brought up, maybe both, and he reacted. Um, Mexico were interesting. They came twice came from 2-0 down to draw with Belgium and uh, Holland or the Netherlands. And that actually that, that comeback into the Netherlands ultimately put Belgium out. Um they had Blanco who um did that hop, which huh. kind of went viral or whatever the equivalent was in nineteen ninety eight. I don't know if things are quite going viral then. Um and they had Luis Hernandez up front who looked a bit like Kenija with his long hair and um but was quite kind of, really rapid, really dynamic and um yeah I think he scored four goals in the group, maybe. He certainly scored a last minute equalizer against Holland, which ultimately put him through. That was when because Japstan had just joined Man United before the tournament for I think for a world record fee for a defender. And he made a mistake for that goal, so you can imagine the um the the press were having a field day about United. But I think didn't um didn't David Pleat call him Bambi on ice or something during the tournament? Maybe, maybe I misremembered that. But anyway, yeah, it was a good group. There were some really good goals. I think there was a brilliant outside-the-foot volley from... might even have been Blanco, actually, when when Belgium drew with Mexico. Um, yeah, Holland South beat South Korea 5-0. As I said, that was like, probably their... But it was their, their easiest win the tournament, when they were like, full freedom of expression. Um But it ended up quite a tight group. Look at the points, 5-5-3-1. So, Holland, um, oh, no, actually, uh, sorry, I cocked up there. By saying that um, Hernandez's goal put Mexico through, that wasn't true because Belgium didn't beat South Korea, which I completely forgotten about. So, had they beaten them, which everyone assumed they would, then Hernandez's goal would have put Mexico through anyway. Uh, So, um, I'll shut up now before I make any more mistakes.
0: Well, just before I come to you, uh, Mike, I'll I'll use one of my... my father's old sayings, which I always find is, is very handy. He always he always used to tell me, if you want to know how strong the team is, have a look at the bench. So if we look at um, Holland's substitutes in, in this group stage, in the first game they brought on Wan Zenden, uh, the player that my son Jesper always recalls, Dennis Bergkamp, Dennis Bergkamp, Dennis Bergkamp, <laughs> uh, and Vim Yonk. In the uh, second game, they brought on uh, Pierre argument, Van Hoyerdonk.
2: This is where your argument falls down. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, not Van Hoyerdonk. Next one, <laughs> Winston Bogardé. <Yeah>, well, <laughs> uh, uh, no, he wasn't Barham, he, was a, he was a strange player. Boudouin Zendan again, and then in the uh, final game, Aaron Winter, Winston Bogardé again, and Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank. Now, if if they're what you're bringing on to change a game, then the uh, and you've got a pretty good eleven to start with, um, but again, with the the Dutch, they do like a row amongst themselves, and perhaps uh, all was not uh, uh, sweetness and light in the camp. It would be the first time ever if that were the case. They also had
2: a, a peak Overmars, who had just um, won the double for Arsenal, and Overmars at his best was nine unplayable. Um, but I think from memory, we'll get to. I think didn't he miss the semi final with her injury, which was a really big big moment because he, I mean, he was a glorious
0: player yeah, he, he was a fantastic player uh, Mike have you anything to add to a Group E
1: yeah well, just on that Dutch side really Is that um, so Gus Hiddink who was the manager uh, he'd done a lot in the previous two years to sort of repair squad morale so he, he'd he been the manager at Euro 96 uh, and that was a campaign that fell apart uh, due to this there was a volcanic row in the camp between a lot of the Ajax players Uh alleged to be about, you know, bonuses and, you know, status at the club and things like that. But in the in the years that followed, because of the Bosman ruling and everything, that team had uh, split up. It had gone everywhere, you know, Ove was at Arsenal, uh, you know, Clive at the De Boers, you know, everyone had started moving on, basically. So, um, yeah, hitting, I think, before the tournament, I read some story that he got them all to, I don't know, sign some kind of... Uh, I don't know, sort of treaty, some sort of non-aggression treaty between all the players <laughs> that they, you know, they were going to focus on the World Cup and not let things like that come in the way of it. And um, yeah, I think that's that's such an amazing generation of Dutch players, isn't it? And I think this this might really have been the tournament that they should have won. Yeah,
2: I mean, um, well, yeah, you can make the case two thousand because they were at home, but I think this, was, yeah, they're home. Yeah, they were a be- This is a better team, even though the results weren't that impressive. Yeah. It's a good point about Hiddink; he was very good, and his kind of. He's got a quite a cuddly manner, but he's very good at creating harmony. You look at what he did twice as um uh interim manager at Chelsea. It kind of instantly turned a mutinous group into a really harmonious group um He was clearly very good at that
0: and is it, is it South Korea where he is sort of treated as a kind of demigod or am I yeah, because he got into it? the 2002
2: Demi-Gottis. semifinals yeah and yeah uh, interesting well- manager.
0: Well, uh,
1: before we leave the group, oh, go on, Mike. Oh, can I just do one bit on? Uh, I just wanted to say a quick. But uh, Rob mentioned it earlier about the uh, that bit of skill by Blanco, where he just he kind of gathers the ball in yeah, in lovely. between his ankles and jumps between two uh, challenges. It's such it's such a strange piece. It of really isn't skill. It? It, it looks really sort of clumsy and ungainly. But I mean, it's it's quite a, I don't know innovative way of getting between. <laughs> Two players, yeah. but if you, if you look at another bit of skill in that World Cup, which like it would have been the first time most people would have seen Denilson, and oh, he would yeah. do like the you know the seven step overs, you see that replicated now, you know yes. you see people doing lots of step-overs. I don't think I've ever seen anyone replicate the Blanco hop. No, it's good. Ever, I can't ever remember seeing it. It's again. a hard it's just thing to do.
2: The other thing I love about Blanco is he, he was kind of completely forgotten it in a global sense, and then he rocked up again in 2010. Do you remember? And he's, he he's got a penalty against France with the longest run up ever. It was almost from right <laughs> halfway line <laughs> at the age of about 36 or something. It was bizarre, but but yeah, nice. you're right. It's a it's really interesting. It would hardly ever repeat it. It's a it's a really odd thing, isn't it? You kind of squash it between your legs and then jump between two. Planets. Yeah, <laughs> so
0: it's just really weird. I suspect it's one of those things, and I always like them, that um, the pros say is showboating or is uh, is sort of demeaning your opponent. Mm-hmm. You know, when you go to the corner flag and you do keepy-uppy because it, yeah. does, it means that the, the player can't sort of come round you. I mean, I love that sort of thing uh, because that's if I was a professional footballer and I was 2 and a up, that's exactly what I would do. You know, all of this about, you know, it's uh, it's beneath the dignity and it's demeaning your opponent. No, it's not. It's it's helping yeah. your chances of winning, mm, but I suspect Tony, it might be one of those. Yeah. Mm.
1: Tony, um, Tony Adams. I read I read an interview with him once where um, I think he he, he was making a comeback game in the reserves. I think maybe after he was coming back from um, the priory and his and his alcoholism, uh, and he said uh, how horrible he found the experience, and he and I think the quote was something like, "Oh, guys were megging me, trying to take the piss out of me." Like the idea. <laughs> The idea that a nutmeg is such an insult—it's exactly. right? just not a way to get past someone. It's you know, it's uh, deliberately stripping away your it's, dignity.
0: It, it's one of the sort of last, last vestiges of kind of cloggers from the fifties and sixties. That somehow there is a there is a, a noble and an ignoble way to to play the game. Uh, yeah. It's not. There are ways that are effective and ways that are ineffective. The last thing I'll say is that um, Belgium's number twenty-one rejoices in the name Danny Boffin. I do hope he had an educated <laughs> left foot. <laughs> so, on, on that, we'll move across to um, Group F, which I think is yours, Rob. Um, it, am I uh, right? No, it doesn't
2: matter. It doesn't matter. You can okay. do the next one. Um, <laughs> so, Germany, Yugoslavia, Iran, USA. Germany, Yugoslavia qualified as expected. But the game that a group is best remembered for is, of course, Iran, USA, which was hugely politically charged. There was a really good documentary on the BBC. For the twenty eighteen World Cup about it, talking to a lot of players and on both sides. Um around one two one one two one. Vicky has got a lovely goal. Around from the halfway line, kind of toe bunged it past um whoever the USA's probably Premier League basekeeper was. Um, it, was um, Caled, it was Casey Keller. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it was it was actually a really it was a really peaceful game. Uh there were no kind of problems or anything. But that's probably what it's remembered for. Um Germany were uh kind of even when they won Euro ninety-six, they weren't a great side, and they'd lost Mateusz Samus since then, who was by far the best player. They'd also lost um or weren't picking Dieter IELTS, who was the kind of unsung hero of Euro ninety-six. He's probably getting on, I think he was 31 in 96, I don't know, but anyway, so they were even weaker then, and they were just relying on all the old kind of mental strength and the aura. So they were being completely outplayed by Yugoslavia, were two-down, the keeper had made a cock-up for one of the girls and they still managed to draw 2-2. And it just felt, at that point, they still had that aura, which we, we know now would disappear very, very, very quickly. Um, but they topped the group by virtue of that. Uh, Yugoslavia draw and a superior goal difference. Um, I don't know what else to say, really. Um, Yugoslavia had some pretty good players, Stojkovic, Stankovic, uh, Mihailovic, and so on. Um, and we were a decent side. Um... USA still weren't quite at the level they were. I mean, four years later, they probably should have got to the semi-finals. Are a very handy side and would become much more competitive. Apart from when they were host, obviously, a competitive in '94 as hosts, but in '98 they were kind of out of their depth a bit. Uh, but it was it was it was a reasonable enough group. weren't as expected. The the big thing, as I said, was that it ran USA, which had been hyped massively for obvious reasons. Quite a low scoring group as well. Lots of kind of one 0s two nils, and um, and the like.
0: Well, there are plenty of Everton fans who will say that uh, you're pushing your luck if you want to get out of the group stage of the World Cup, and you're selecting at number nine Joe Max Moore <laughs> uh, there, and, uh, oh, and Brian McBride, who also played for Everton. And McBride was a good player. Sure. Just one, yeah, he was one a much thing: better player.
2: Klinsman still looked really good. He, um, I think, he was a captain. He'd gone to Spurs on loan and helped him stay up. Um, so he's kind of past his best, but he's slightly past his best. But he still looked very good. He has got a lovely goal against the USA. Um, but Germany were a bit like um, Mike said about Bulgaria, kind of fossilized. Germany were kind of the same. They were still picking people from 1990, never mind 1994. So you know, Matthias Hessler, Klinsmann, who admittedly was still in pretty good touch, um, Jürgen Kohler. Yeah, they were just they were just they were about to kind of go very quickly down the uh, down the hill.
0: You, you need a you need a plan B if your plan A is uh, knocking across in for uh, via Bierhoff to uh, hammer a header in. It's uh, it's it was old school football even in '98 as you as you point yeah, out. Yeah, that's Rob. a good point, Mike.
1: Well, I I remember the uh, the Iran USA game very well. So I was in I was in university in Swansea at the time, and I went to uh, there's a there's a pub in Swansea called the Cricketers. It's by Saint Helens. Um, the cricket ground. It's where Gary, uh, or near where Gary Sobers hit his six sixes. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, we're down um, the road
0: to Swansea.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's uh, there's actually, uh, I think one of the sixes actually went through the window of the pub. Um, and there's a kind of a little plaque up and all that. Um, Stuff, but that's uh, just a little aside and a, no- a nod to your. Uh, if you want to plug your cricket podcast while we're <laughs> in, go doing. on, Gary, get in there.
0: <laughs> well, if you want to hear more eighties and nineties nostalgia this time about cricket, join us at the Eighties and Nineties Cricket Show.
1: <laughs> Seamless. We didn't even plan that.
0: <laughs> um
1: But I. The, so the cricket is the pub, uh, they were showing the whole World Cup. Uh, on a big screen and they would have on a chalkboard as you walked in a list of all the fixtures and they had them all sort of chalked up and next to the Iran USA they just had a load of exclamation marks it it was um, I guess you know like England Argentina in 86 or East Germany versus West Germany it had this I guess backdrop to it. You can't help it when there's two countries playing against each other. But it always seems to be part of the conversation, doesn't it? And that's one thing I do remember it's seeing on the news at the time was um, Bill Clinton, the president, uh, went live on American television to say, um, oh, we're playing the USA tonight, but, you know, it's just sport and sport can build a bridge and all this kind of stuff. And, it's, and you <laughs> just think, well, soccer, soccer must have travelled some distance oh, in the past sort so- of eight years. That would never have happened, you know, in you know, Italian 90s. I, I
2: shouldn't it? laugh, especially that we're recording this a few hours before the election, but can you imagine <laughs> Donald Trump's equivalent? <laughs> oh, just,
1: <laughs> um, well... Yeah. I mean, and, just, uh, uh, just
2: to, just to re- repeat, just re- if you can, I don't know if it's still on, but that BBC documentary is really, really good. You should both watch if you can, as, as should both our listeners.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, the players, I remember being very responsible because it was, you know, inevitably, although... the the political climate isn't as sort of absurdly uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Fervid? Not fervid. Is it fetid? Or febrile? (laughs) Febrile! That's what it is. It's It's actually all of those three, to be honest, but it wasn't as febrile then as it is now. Um, but there was, you know, there was talk of calling it off and boycotting and everything else when uh, when the uh, the balls were drawn out of the hat, so to speak. But um, the players conducted themselves with great dignity, played a football yeah. match. It was played hard and fair, and the better side, as you say, uh, won. And I don't think any of the United States players um, did anything other than than play a play a football match against worthy opponents and I vice re- versa. I remember. Well, yeah.
2: who- oh, sorry, go, on, Mike.
1: Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, that, that game for them, for Iran and the USA, that was the tournament. Not not just because of who it was against, but because of the group, you know, Germany, you, you kind of knew beforehand which two teams were going to get through. And they'd lost their first games. Yeah, yeah and, it, yeah, and they lost their first games, so,
2: yeah. I, I always remember there was still the kind of um, innocence about a World Cup and fascination with players you'd never heard of. Mardovicchi's goal was so good. I remember one of the first things I did was, of course, in those days, go and buy him on Championship Manager. And he was absolutely shy, inevitably. So <laughs> the uh, the research maybe wasn't as good in those days as it would be now because he was actually a pretty good player, by all accounts.
0: Well, I'll, I'll finish this just by remembering the nickname that he had at Goodison. Uh, Joe Moore's nickname at Goodison was Joe Max Less, which uh, <laughs> I think is a little unfair. He's, there are th- he there are he three... played in the World Cup, and last time I checked, I hadn't. So. There are three
2: future or former um, Everton players in that. Uh, USA team. Bro McBride he mentioned and also Precky who I'd forgotten about. Oh yeah. Came on for Roy Reggley.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Preki who yeah. had the same trick every time and everyone bought it. Shuffling field on his left foot, yeah. twist them outside, and every t- everyone bought it anyway.
0: I, I saw a shocking match around that time um at uh, uh when Wimbledon were playing at Sunburst <laughs> Park and Everton's entire entire creative output came from Precky and you're thinking oh Dear oh dear. But let's let's move to um to uh a group uh which which is rather more interesting. Um because it has this team called England in it. And and Rob, you have you have literally written the uh the article, if not quite the book on this. So do you wanna kick us off with uh with group G?
2: Um Yeah, so it, geez, we could do a whole pod on this really. We 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 should mention we actually did or you guys did a pod on Glen Hoddle's England in the past, which you can um, look up if you're interested. Uh, yeah, so England, Romania, Tunisia, Colombia, which is quite a tricky group, really, because Romania um, still had G, still had plenty of the 94 squad, even though they have not been particularly good at Euro 96, they were still dangerous. And Colombia still had plenty of the 94 squad, who admittedly had done bugger all, but were a good team with good players.
0: But listen, um, Rob, you know, that's insinuating It's deep into our discussion, you're not insinuating this is the wait for it. Uh, group of death,
2: no, we uh, it's what's the one I think group D was maybe close to that, the, the Spain group, but anyway, yeah. So, gee, I don't know where you start. Maybe we could talk about Gascoigne being omitted. That's like a half an hour discussion in itself.
0: I, I, I it's think it's a inter- half hour tantrum, that's for sure. It's the interesting,
2: thing, yeah, the interesting thing generally about England in this tournament is that, and I don't know whether he did it deliberately or whether it was just um, inexperience, naivety, narcissism or whatever. But Glenn Hoddle made this tournament about him more than any England manager since probably any England manager ever. Um, there were all kinds of, you know, strange things, um, arguments with Alex Ferguson, when he said, um, when he left David Beckham out and then made him do a press conference. I think a few players Beckham said it was like the England manager just playing mind games with his own players, which I thought was quite a nice quote. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's so many kind of elements to it. You know, the emergence of Michael Owen, the delayed emergence, because he didn't start the tournament. Hoddle started with uh, Sheringham and Shearer up front, even though he'd made Sheringham jump through hoops and apologise for pictures of him in the Algarve uh, when they were supposed to be recuper- <laughs>
1: recuperating. Sheringham's uh, got a very high opinion of Hoddle. <laughs> yeah, <hasn't> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's that famous, famous quote, um,
2: <laughs> yeah, which well, it involves a C word. You could probably... <laughs> fill out the rest. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, so the, the, the other thing, England started by beating Tunisia 2-0. Um, Scholes, who had kind of effectively replaced Gascoigne in a 3-4-1-2, scored a brilliant goal late on. Uh, it's pretty worth just going through the England team, actually. So, yeah, yeah. 3-4-1-2. David Seaman, uh, back three of Campbell, Adams, and the Southgate. Um, then the wing-backs for Anderton and Lasso. Anderton was an interesting one because Beckham had been playing wing-back for most of the uh, qualification campaign, and then Anderton, who had been unfit for most a lot of the two years since you were in was fit and came back and actually played brilliantly at the World Cup. Um, solid midfield of Inter Batty, as Mike mentioned, which he really liked. Then skulls behind Shearer and Sheringham. The team would evolve quite quickly because um, Owen became irresistible and Beckham also found his way. And one thing I'll tell you about that team, it's pretty slow. If you look at that, There's not a huge amount of pace in that at all, really. Um, Campbell, yes... It's up to a point. The rest, I don't think there's anyone else who's rapid in that team. The other thing about the Tunisia game is that there was I didn't know this till years later, there was an Al-Qaeda plot um to shoot the Alan Shearer, to um, blow up David Seaman. It's a this this it sounds like a Chris Morris thing, but it's true. Um, and it was thwarted by um French police. Um, yeah, which I only found out, I think Hodler was told years later that. Um, I only found it when I was researching this article for Eurosport about England's campaign. Um, yeah, it just seems absolutely extraordinary that um, that might have happened.
0: Yeah, when you look at that lack of pace, it's it's pretty clear how Owen gets in that side, isn't it? When you when exactly you, you put it in that way, you know, I'd completely forgotten that Darren Anderton was an England footballer, or that he was, or that he was any good. It's, it's oh, one of those it players terrific. that you just. You just forget about it. when he when he was fit and unformed. He he was. He had he the happy
2: habit of being excellent. fit for major tournaments. Well, Euro '86 and thingy anyway. Michael know more about this because he did it. He did the book on Euro '86. But I, I can't remember Anderson playing a full season between about '95 and well ever after that really. Um, but he's always seemed to be fit. And yeah, yeah, he, he had some excellent moments in this yeah. tournament. He scored. Um, I mean, it's just worth running through the groups. So the next game, Romania beat Colombia one 0 Adrian Ilya, who's another of those players you heard a little bit about, you know, the next generation of greats potentially, scored a beautiful goal where he ducked inside someone and opened his body and whipped it in the far corner. Uh, Colombia beat Tunisia 1-0. And then we got a game that kind of, in a way, defined England's tournament because it ended up putting them in the wrong half of the draw. They lost 2-1 to Romania. Um, Owen came on and scored an equaliser, um... But then Petrescu, Dan Petrescu, was at, I think it was at Chelsea at the time, scored a last minute winner. It was a slightly weird one because there was a ball in behind and he was running with Lasso. And I think he poked Lasso in the eye, not deliberately. So Lasso just stopped holding his face. Um, and Petrescu kind of smuggled it past Seaman. That, that was the game when poor Kevin Keegan, the first of his two famous commentaries in the tournament, I think, because Owen equalised at about the 80th minute or something. A really good kind of instinctive finish. Um, and Brian Moore on ITV asked Keegan about the game. And Keegan said, there's only one team going to win this now, England. And, of course,
0: there you go. So, What, it, what impressed me about that goal from Petrescu is that he was, you know, he's indicated as wing-back, but he yeah, was yeah, probably exactly. full-back. And it was the 90th minute in open play. And he got on the end of a a, a ball to... to to Score from sort of the edge of the six yard box,
2: but there were so many little kind of things around that. So, for example, Southgate had injured himself in the first no, after the first game during a war, a run, a warm down the next day, I think. But anyway, Hoddle still made him do a press conference and say he was fine. And there was a lot, a lot that the team, a lot of the team were quite unhappy with things like that. Beckham was obviously unhappy with being made to do a press conference. Um, And they also had a week between Tunisia and Romania, which is not ideal. So then you get the whole boredom of the World Cup, which is kind of never in the brochure. One thing they did do to um, enliven it a bit was they had a competition to get as many song titles as they could into um, interviews. It's quite funny, actually. There's a a few clips on YouTube, and some of them are are better than others, like um, Tony Adams is just deadpan going about, oh, I'm so excited. (laughs) But it's, it's actually quite funny to watch um Southgate was quite good as well, I think Southgate got careless whispering somehow um so yeah, do you but, know
1: um do you know whose idea that was thats it was uh, Alan Shearers apparently. was it yeah it's something he used to do at newcastle apparently he didn't, so he didn't you wouldn't you wouldn't associate him as being the you know the Archbishop of banterbury <laughs> or, or, or whatever would you but, uh, yeah apparently yeah. it was yeah. yeah
0: well well i I felt that That the Mike Bassett film, um, I think it came out after this. Yeah, yeah, was it? Well, I always felt it was. It was based on, on. I mean, obviously, it was a parody and a satire on lots of, of sort of different sort of ways in which England have failed to to win World Cups and Euro European Championships, but it always had the feel of France '98 to me. Even though obviously Mike Bassett and Glenn Hoddle are, are very different uh, characters, but but you know maybe it's the song titles, maybe it's the boredom, you know, the week long boredom in a in a sort of French chateau or something like this. But the the uh, whenever I see, and occasionally I'll dip into some YouTube clips because. Um, the, the Mike Bassett film is is funny, and at times very funny indeed. Uh, it always sort of conjures England at uh, at uh, World Cup 98
2: for me. It's worth just going, so the last games on a Friday night played simultaneously, Romania were pretty much through. So they did that thing, and they played Tunisia, and they uh, they all dyed their hair blonde, I don't if you remember. Badly. Um, Badly. Yeah, but he, the, uh, the thing I remember isn't that. It's Jimmy Hill saying, being ridiculed for saying in a BBC studio that, you know, uh, it might actually help the peripheral vision if you just got... A- <laughs> I actually think it's, he was really... I remember, I, f- I forget who was in the studio, but it was all like, yeah, yeah, Jimmy, well done. But actually, you think about it, you probably now you call that... You might call that a one 1%, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, having said that, he did have bright yellow shirts, so maybe they didn't
0: well, need... Yeah. That. <laughs> I was going to say, if they were wearing grey shirts at uh, at the Dell, perhaps uh, yeah. it would help, yeah. <laughs>
2: so I mean, Eng- England were left to... Uh, I'll let Mike talk about the game, but it basically meant that, effectively, England were playing Columbia and England had to draw... Um, and it was kind of essentially a knockout game so Colombia had to win England could take the draw um, with the kind of secondary bit that England could potentially top the group if they won and Romania lost as it transpired Romania got a late issue equaliser against Tunisia but I'll let Mike talk about the Colombia game
0: yeah Mike
1: uh, yeah well just a couple of bits to preface that Is, uh, so when England when they beat Tunisia that was the famous uh, Des Lynam uh, shouldn't you be in work oh <laughs> that's right it was one o'clock on a Monday afternoon, I think it was. I <laughs> <laughs> something like that. W- were you um, in the pub by any chance? Oh, I was very much in the pub.
0: But, <laughs> <laughs>
2: but you think <laughs> that now, just imagine, like, at Monday 1pm in the pub, and you'll probably be there for the next 10, 10 hours. It's just—it's like another world, but anyway. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I
0: was an academic, believe me, in so, mid-June. So, <laughs> that was just well, part of the course. <laughs>
1: apparently, a um, little bit of social history. that uh, You know... Um, so the England and Wales school board—they they do the same exams on the same day, or they used to then anyway. Like all across the country at the same time. Apparently, it was A-level English at one o'clock that afternoon. No or, way. All over it. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so, so many people would have. Uh, you know, missed that um, game, but um, no I mobile think...
0: phones uh, then either. There must have been some of the invigilators with little earpieces in, who, if they had a kind of favourite pupil who they knew as a mad keen fan, would just go past them and yeah. sort of knock them twice on the table, <laughs> two nil, you know, whatever. Uh, excellent.
1: Yeah, but I think Rob uh, Rob made a really good point about the um, Romania game actually about defining England's tournament because um, yeah, it, it sent them into the harder half of the draw that meant they couldn't win it, but. It was in that game that they found the team that might have won it, you know, because they brought Owen on, uh, they brought Beckham on in that game as well. I think he came. Batty on, got injured, didn't he? Batty they? got injured, didn't he? And then, so they, they both then started um, in the next game against Colombia, which was uh, it was win or bust basically. Both teams were on three points, um, and uh, yeah, England beat them in the first half basically. So uh, yeah, really good goal from Anderton. I agree, had a, had a fantastic tournament. Um, the amount of ground he covered for someone who'd been out for basically two years was just incredible.
2: Really. Yeah, there's a there's a moment in the Argentina game, the one after um, Campbell's disallowed goal and half the England team was celebrating and he, I think he was the one who took the corner and he ends up at the other end of the field stopping because Argentina played on, which there would have been an absolute riot had they scored. I think they end up like 4v2 and Anderson yeah. wheezes to the other side yeah. of the field 90 yards and makes a last-hit tackle.
0: It's extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yes. and then. Anderton was one of those players that... Oh, no, I didn't, it
2: was into... I, sorry, just go... It was into when I forget Romania, not Batty. Yeah. Oh, was it? But anyway, yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, Anderton was one of those players that um, I didn't necessarily rate until I saw him play live. And live, he was he was everywhere. He was running the game. He was taking the ball off the defence, carrying the ball forward. He was wide. He was in the middle. He was absolutely uh, everywhere and took us apart, really i remember being disappointed uh, seeing chris waddle albeit uh, playing for sheffield wednesday i think rather than for uh, tottenham um but uh, or newcastle but um anderton was was absolutely fantastic against everton and always rated him since so mike uh, anything to add to uh, to england's successful albeit uh, qualification in second place and into the the trickier half, but karma came back in 2018 where we uh, were given a a magic carpet ride through to the semi-final. So,
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, so, yeah, after Anderton's goal, I mean, then Beckham scores that great free kick. Um, That was his first goal for England, wasn't it? It was, yeah. It's something like his 30th cap as well, and it took him absolutely ages to get off the mark, because he's playing wing-back for a lot of the time. But, um, Mm. yeah, that was the big, um, you know, darkest before the dawn moment, as I think Rob says in his uh, piece, you know, Scores the free kick and arrives at the World Cup. Um and Once. Mondragon gave him an absolute crater to aim for as well. I think he was like stood right on one post and um back like Beckham whipped it over and into the corner. And uh, the whole like, England played brilliantly that night. Skulls was great. Campbell goes on this <laughs> yeah. um, amazing run. Um, I think in the second half where he beats four players um and almost gets through one on one. Uh Never was into the team by this point. Owen, uh, he didn't score in this game, but he had a fantastic game. He just looked absolutely terrifying every time he got the ball. And I, I don't think maybe Colombia were quite aware of him or how quick he was or how good he was. Um, but I many, he was just completely taking the piss at points. You know, nutmegging people. There's a runny go. There's a runny goes on down one wing where um, I can't remember. Is it maybe Bermudez? He's chasing up this year. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, Trevor Brookings says in the commentary, look at him, his tongue's hanging out because he's so forlornly <laughs> trying to chase after Owen. Um, and it, it, he he looked great in that game, Owen. I mean, he didn't score, but it was a kind of warning shot to what he would do a few days later.
2: It's interesting, I cut just a couple of things. One thing I love about doing these long articles is you get to research really minute details. So the day before the game, Beckham had spent two hours on his own basically on a small pitch, practicing free kicks, listening to Tupac on a big stereo. And of course it all all pays off. I mean, his his work ethic was always extraordinary. The other thing is Scholes was the only England player who made um, Laquipe's team in the first round, which is kind of forgotten because he would go on to miss a really big chance against Argentina. And Mm. it's quite interesting that he, um, because he was still, he'd played most of the season. He was, it slowly transitioned from a number 10 to a, central midfielder at United for a variety of reasons whereas in this tournament he actually played pretty much as a number 10 but behind two strikers um, and it's a role that I, I kind of it looked like everyone always compared him to Kelly Dalgleish when he was a, a younger player and it looked like that would be his position and actually for most of the rest of his career with the United and England he barely played there again but I think because he missed that really big chance against Argentina at 2-1 I think people sometimes forget how well he played um, in the group stage particularly against uh, Tunisia in Colombia,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, we were, we'll leave the, the uh, Englands group there, and um, I almost made a joke uh, that wondering whether what Beckham was listening to was Tupac's "The Ten Crack Shot Commandments," but of course that wasn't Tupac, that was Biggie. So uh... just
2: out of interest, Gary, <laughs> yeah. where would and you said you were working in academia at the time? Where would you um would you have had access to games at like Monday lunchtime? Where would you have been? watching well, probably, Friday evening games was it, we we wouldn't it
0: be pub culture or was it yeah going we, home or? we wouldn't um we wouldn't have been in uh we wouldn't have been teaching obviously it's it's June so we'd have been marking and doing preparation so you could you could easily you know you could easily say you know sort of leave at at, uh, at one o'clock and come back in at three thirty because you'd stay till seven or you'd pick it up at the weekend and stuff like this and um you know you was also because it was uh, a college there was tellies around so you go to the student union bar and you'd watch there or or you know the pub across the road or sometimes a, a telly in a in a classroom and the, at the next world cup in 2002 remember it was japan and korea and matches were starting at seven thirty. Yes. um at, at that stage, I was working in a in a school of media, so we had a kind of cinema quality projector, and so we ran the matches through through there, and we got sort of about fifty of us in a tiered lecture theatre, and um, we watched uh, we watched the games there, banging on the floor when the uh, when the uh, national anthem was playing and stuff like that. So you know, there's there's always opportunities for a lot of fun uh, in a, in a university. Um, so yeah, I. If there was a match I wanted to see, it was pretty easy for me to to get to see it, unless there was some kind of tedious meeting. But even then, you usually had some football fans who say, "Hey, the England game's on. You know, let's, let's can we defer to four o'clock? Yeah, yeah, yeah." But it was going to be a three hour meeting. We'll make it a one hour meeting. So we did it like that.
2: And just one other thing on Holland. I mean, I don't want to be too harsh on him because he did a hell of a lot of good things in the tournament as well. In particular, I think his management, his adjustment after Beckham sending off, it was absolutely masterful, but he also I just, there were so many things going on. Even, you know, he, um, he always claimed that it, because that was his infamous diary of the world cup, which eventually kind of partially cost him his job. He always claimed in that, that he planned to um, pick Owen against Colombia because of their lack of pace. Of course, Owen started for the first time, <laughs> except he declined to tell Owen and Sheringham until like, however long before the game. So whether he actually did plan it or whether he's being wise after the event, I, I don't know. But um, yeah, there was just so much going on. I mean, even before, we'll probably come to, even before the Argentina game, there was an incident where he kind of humiliated Beckham and said, wanted to. to I think it was a, a free kick where you play it back, flick it up and volley. And Beckham couldn't get it right. He said, <clears throat> you're clearly not able to do this. There was another one when he bo- bollocked all the reserve players like naughty school kids because they didn't know the set piece routines. He made them do effectively detention and stay out and do them all. Um, and it was just, there was just so much going on. Um, however, they- I was to oh, say, it's, it's really important to say that while most of the players didn't like his man management, I thought more than anything, thought it was immature. Cause you know, he was, I think he was only 40, That um, almost everyone loved his uh, sessions and his tactical um, awareness and everything. And, his ambition as well to kind of making them play in a slightly more sophisticated way. It's a really interesting story because there's no, you just can't say, oh, we cock this up. There are so many people who are both hero and villain. So Beckham is the obvious one apart from Hodel. Um Even Skull's up to a point. So I, I find it a really fascinating, probably more fascinating than any England World Cup campaign since 1990, certainly. And I mean, I include subsequent ones in that.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think, for I me, I think that's probably the best. A squad or teaming in a Central World Cup, I well, think, they, on well, it, It's interesting, because it, you had the mix of the, the kind of, the granite
2: core of Euro 96, Seaman, Adams, mm. uh, and admittedly reduced Shearer, Inch, who was marvellous, and then you had the golden, what would become known as the Golden Generation, so Beckham's goals, yeah. and so Campbell. I think they had a lot of, a hell of a lot of good players in there.
1: Yeah, but I, and I think I, I think what you, what you say is right about their opinion of Hoddle, because, because of how how good and innovative he was as a coach. They were prepared to put up with things like, you know, Ireland Drury and... Well, actually, you know, these, though,
2: these kind of, yeah, no, no, you're right. A lot yeah. of players actually, I mean, Ireland Drury, is always ridiculed for and, you know, and there's a lot of stories about short back and size and everything. But actually a lot mm. of players, Southgate says she helped him because he had yeah. a really bad spell after his missed penalty. Paul Merced and Ian Wright spoke really highly of her. But you're right, the only, probably the only other downside for Hodler is that he came on the back of a coach... He was not only tactically smart, but also a brilliant man manager. Um, yeah. So they were used to Venables treating like adults. And then he would be a lot more, um, I mean, I, I was thinking about this when I read a piece and it's, it's almost like he wasn't like the headmaster. He was almost like a like head prefect, you know, he just like, because he wasn't that much older and he just, uh, there was just some things he did that were a bit
1: um, felt like they were ostentatious and unnecessary. Yeah. He didn't he have a yeah. natural relaxed authority of Venables. No, he wasn't the kind of matey boss, and I think he's maybe the kind of manager that English football wasn't quite ready for yet. Yeah, you're going to kind of give him, yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I, I I think he was an odd fish in lots of ways, as you've indicated here. But I think he was also ahead of his time in understanding that that players were also young men with hangups and stuff like this, and whatever the vehicle was, and you know, it was strange that he picked a whatever she was, a soothsayer or whatever she was as the as the person to do it. But it was right to give the players an opportunity to work through those things, that, that those mental scars and bring them to the surface. It's something that would, you know, sports psychologists who were still probably five or ten years in the future in 98 mm-hmm. um, were able to do much more systematically. But he, he probably was ahead of his time in that sense. But you get the, the feeling sometimes with Huddle that he kind of stumbled across this with his... With his um, esoteric approach, shall we say, to uh, to the psychological aspects of the of the game, uh, well, there was a bit of
1: um, there was a on. bit of immature hubris. Sorry, just finished on something. I yeah. just think it was a bit of immature kind of hubris about him, where you just think if he could have just got the job five years later, I, thought, I think I think it might it might have worked out a lot better. Like, what one example of that is before, right before the first game, I think when he dropped Beckham. Uh, he was doing a BBC interview and they they asked him why he dropped Beckham and uh, Hoddle said he's not been focused on his football. His his club should have looked at that earlier. Yeah. So that's firing a shot and going nose to nose with Alex Ferguson. It's like, why would you give yourself that distraction, you know, ahead of a World Why would you call it on with Alex Ferguson ahead of a World Cup like that? Why not just kind of leave him out and just say, I prefer Anderton? Or, it just seemed like a really strange way. And a lot of his dealings with the media as well, he would often mislead them about um you know who was fit, who wasn't, yeah, who's was gonna be South in the team, came. who's gonna be in the squad, all all this kind of stuff. I mean, you're not obliged to be, you know, chummy and matey with the media by any means, but you know, it's useful to have them on side in a lot of yeah. cases. So you, you do have to kind of work with them and he, he handled a lot of that quite badly as well, I think.
0: Well we do have a, a huddle episode, so we will be able to direct you or you can find it yourself in our catalogue of uh, three three seasons now. This is the start of our fourth oh, season, we hope. Uh you'll you'll find it there. But we'll uh, we'll move in the uh in the, the to the last of the groups, perhaps the most lopsided of, of groups, which is uh, group H. So uh Mike, do you wanna tell us a story of group H? Uh,
1: it's it' pretty similar to the uh the uh Germany and Yugoslavia and uh Iran and USA group. I think it's they kinda of, kind of knew which two teams were probably gonna qualify out of this. Um So, yeah, Argentina won all three games. I was mildly obsessed with this generation of Argentina players. Um, I mean, there's there's so many good players in there, Uh, particularly particularly Batistuta, um, who I really liked to USA 94. I I think he scored five goals in this tournament. He gets a hat-trick against uh, Jamaica, I think it is. And uh, he he got the winner winner against Japan as well. Um, Loads of, yeah, just really... Nice ball playing uh, players in midfield. Uh, Ortega, I thought you know really stylish player. Simeone, who's been a bit the, the uh, you know the the nemesis to England, but you know I thought he thought he's a really good sort of composed, balancing player in the middle as well. Uh, yeah, really strong at the back. And I think they beat Brazil in a friendly that was an inverted commas friendly. I think it was in the April before um, before this World Cup. And that was seen as a kind of uh, a foreshadowing result that you know maybe Argentina could be you know the team that could go on and win this World Cup. I just thought, uh, yeah, they're a really good side, really impressive in this uh, first round, I think. And then Croatia, they they'd had a really good um, Euro '96, but lost their heads a bit against Germany in the quarter final um, when they kind of got drawn into a row when they were probably the technically the better side, and you know could have taking Germany on at football rather than uh, trying to have a war with them. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that. so they, they lost to Argentina, which meant Argentina won the group. But um, they won their two games before that and qualified quite comfortably. And uh, Yeah, yeah. Mean,
0: looking at that Argentina side, I mean, I know I always say this about Argentina. If ever they could play to their potential, then they'd, they'd win some of these tournaments, which they don't seem to win now for... for Two generations, never mind, one generation, but when I look at the Argentina side we 've already talked about the Brazil side and the um, France side, they look quite a long way ahead of England, to be honest, so if we're saying that that England squad was the the one most likely to win a world cup i don 't think they were going to beat um, these three, of course, they did play Argentina in a very famous match, but um, <clears throat> we'll come to that uh, when we do the the knockouts, but that 's a super strong Argentina side I, yeah. I think
2: I think there were more. Like, really high class <laughs> sides in this World Cup than in any since what, 86, 82? I, 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 they 82, were probably. potentially teams who would have been worthy winners. I think there were oh, worthy winners, is pushing a bit, but there were like Argentina were superb, Netherlands were superb, Brazil, France, Italy were pretty good, England yeah. were pretty decent, Croatia. There was a lot of really high class sides. I don't know why that is. <laughs> um. Um, but more so than 94, and certainly more so than 2002. So Mike makes a point about Ortega, and it's worth um, dwelling on Juan Sebastián Verón as well, who was kind of emerging in Serie A at the time, and he looked majestic yeah. in this tournament. So the then a formation that kind of suited him, 3-4-1-2 again. He just played these crisp passes into Ortega. Ortega was so busy between the lines. It was kind of around the time where we have not really seen number 10s that much in England. With team players like Eric Cantona, who were, you know, good at picking finding space, playing through balls and whatever. But Ortega was so busy Take the ball on half to run at people. He looked sensational. I don't know what happened to his career to be honest, but he looked, he was only young at this point, he looked sensational. And actually his, um, I know we keep talking about it even though we're not really supposed to, but his performance against England and his contest with Paul Ince in the second round game is just glorious. I watched that game a few years ago and the, it's almost like it reminded me a bit of um, Cristiano Ronaldo v Ashley Cole in the Euro 2004 quarterfinal in that, both were sensational. yeah. It was no clear winner. Both just always like both gave nine out of ten performances, and uh, it was just absolutely fascinating to watch. I've
0: yeah, just had, up um... Orte- sorry. I just want to, Mike, if I can just give an answer to Ortega because when you, I'm just looking him up here on uh, Wikipedia, that source of all knowledge. Because it for is an interesting time, question. He?
2: Well, he. He'd been he spent, offered to United, I believe. Although. He
0: spent only three years in the European sort of elite leagues because he, mm. he played 134 games for River Plate. Then in 97 he went to Valencia, played 29. Uh, the next season, he was at Sampdoria, played 27. The next season, he was at Palmer, played 18. And then the rest of his career was back at River Plate, Fenerbahce, only 14 matches, Newell's Old Boys, River Plate, Independiente, uh, All Boys, and then... Uh, Looks like something Belgrano, obviously not general Belgrano. How many?
2: Um, um, how many caps? But he played. How many well, caps, that was the ex- he played two, didn't he? In ninety
0: four. That's the extraordinary thing. You look at that and you think his career was 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 going nowhere. There must have been some problems why the the elite leagues didn't want him. But he played eighty seven matches for Argentina no, over ten years, lot, which is worth about one
2: hundred and ten now. Yeah, so maybe fan, it's our like kind of European snobbery. You know, it's almost like. Um, the whole thing about how English people think Shevchenko's shit just because he's yeah. bad, bad, And likewise, Varane, actually, despite, never mind what they did yeah. throughout. And maybe there's a, a, a kind of a broader version of that with Ortega. I don't know. Yeah. But you, Ortega, think
0: a up number 10 is, is gold. But oh yeah, he um, was brilliant.
2: I'm sure you've got better things to do. But if you ever want to to watch the whole game against England, I'll send you the video. It's so good. He's just a joy to watch. So, like, always taking more than a half turn, and always knowing what he wants to do immediately and quick as well. That's the thing. quick with the ball, which is which is gold for a number ten.
0: Yeah. Sorry, well, mate.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say about Ortega, he was the first Arden tenure number ten to have to deal with the you know the oh, legacy yes. of Maradona, basically. So quite literally, I mean, when so when Maradona got um, kicked out of the 94 World Cup. It was Ortega, who I think was 20 or 21 at the time, who came in to take his place against Bulgaria and against Romania. And, you know, he features here. He had a great World Cup. He scores two really nice goals against um, Jamaica, actually. He's more remembered for Batastuta's uh, hat-trick, but he, he slips in a couple of really nice goals. And if you look around the rest of that team as well, is that Claudio Lopez is up front with uh, Batastuta. They've got Shemot and Ayala, Javier Zanetti at the back. It's, um, they've got Hernan Crespo and Gallardo coming off the bench. It's, yeah. they, they, they didn't take Fernando Redondo to the World Cup. Was incredible that incredible squad.
2: Was that the haircut thing with Passarella? That...
1: Yeah, I don't know how urban mythy that is, whether, that's, um, whether that was the actual definitive reason. but Because um, Gabriel Batistuta's got longish hair in this World yeah. Cup, so I'm not sure how, how hard and fast a rule... That was, but there must have been something going on between, because even with that squad, I mean, you would take Redondo. Yeah, so they had Simeone
2: time. and Varon, but you'd, probably, you'd almost upgrade that, wouldn't you, to Veron and Redondo, as good as Simeone was. Mind you, yeah. Simeone was captain, so yeah, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't fancy having the conversation with him to say, yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm not taking it. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'd have a Gascoigne squared, um, yeah. but uh, let's let's leave the World Cup now and um, return to it in our next episode for the uh, knockout stages, um, including some I think, rather famous matches. Um, but for the last uh, fifteen minutes or so, um, gentlemen, if you're if you're up for it, we're going to look at our Player of the Week. Our player of the week this episode is Charlie Nicholas, the Scottish superstar from Celtic who came south to England following in the footsteps of some uh, very impressive imports in the previous 10 years or so, and the question is, did he quite make it? So um, I'll start with you, if I I may, uh, Mike. Um, Were expectations too high?
1: Uh, maybe, yeah, because of, um, he had the quite lofty comparison of, of Kenny Dalglish, didn't he, <laughs> when, he when he came, uh, when he came south, um, yeah, so, so that's quite a difficult thing to carry with you, um, also he'd scored, I think the 82-83 season, he scored 50 goals in Scotland, I think 48 for Celtic and a couple for Scotland, And, and, you know, they're calling him the cannonball kid and all this kind of stuff. So, um, and he was 21, wasn't
2: he? 21, 22 then. It's a heck of a thing to do at that age.
1: Yeah, so really young. But, you know, he's, you know, Arsenal weren't, um, weren't really challenging for the title at that point either. So he, he was expected to, you know, transform them, uh, three quarters of a million pounds, huge amount of money. Um, so I mean I I don't um, so my football memories kick in from sort of 1985 onwards. So I, I don't remember the signing and the hype. The thing the thing I really remember Nicholas for is the uh, is the 87 Littlewoods Cup final um, when he scores twice and Arsenal come from behind to beat Liverpool because that that slayed rather a significant dragon as well because Ian Rush had scored for Liverpool in that game to put them ahead and uh, when Arsenal turned it over and they beat them, it's the first time in 144 games that Liverpool had lost in which Rush had scored. Um, and everyone knew Rush was just about to go to Juventus as well. So it was quite a significant uh, significant moment. But um, yeah, that, that was his kind of high point in England, really. I don't think he ever... I mean, he never came close to replicating the, the goal scoring of the 82-83 season he had. Was, um,
2: it, was it when Rush scored or when he scored first? I genuinely can't remember.
1: Oh, so um, I think it's... Um... Maybe it's just when he
0: scored. No, it, yeah. Not it matters, but... I think it he was got... when he scored. I uh, think it's I when think... he
1: scored, yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah, a ludicrous that... record. But yeah.
0: Yeah. Just looking at that transfer, according to transfermarkt.com, <laughs> which I understand is <laughs> a, a reliable source, um, Charlie Nicholson was the second most um, expensive uh, signing in the 83-84 season. Uh, moving from Celtic to Arsenal at uh, at the age of 21. Third on that list, Michael Laudrup, 19, going from Brundby to Juventus. Yeah, almost to got, Liverpool. Yeah, we've got Luther Blissett at 25 going from Watford to uh, Milan in a in a transfer that has a lot of uh, pop stories about it. Soren Lerbu from Ajax to uh, Bayern Munich. Uh, and right down the list there, 20-year-old, 10th on the list, Ronald Koeman going from FC Groningen to Ajax. So he's in exalted company, and he he had that that look about him. He looked very much of his time. He had a bit of Bono. He had the Mullet Cup, which was very popular at that time. And it was Champagne Charlie, the cannonball kid. He had, uh, on the other side of the coin, he had two drink-driving convictions by the age of uh, 22. So it wasn't all... uh, Sweetness and light for Charlie, but there was almost a kind of of sense, especially for Arsenal at that time that you know this was this was going to be you know London was going to be the right place for him here 's where he would really come through, moving from the the big fish in still relatively small pool of of uh, Glasgow with its uh, with its internet, in, how do you say that word? internecine kind of, uh, <laughs> conflict uh, there, but admittedly, at that time, there was outstanding teams at, at in Dundee and in Aberdeen. But he was going to come through, and he was going to be the the next off the uh, of the rank of superstars from Scotland. Do you think, Rob? Uh, no, no, God.
2: Well, you your memories are better than ours because um, how to put this politely, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, no, do you think his signing was seen, not, not quite necessarily, but almost the same as when they bought Bergkamp sort of to um, bring bring a bit of sexy back to a dowdy, dowdy club, um, which he did, just not on the field necessarily.
0: Well, he, he was seen as a transformative Cause player. There were three Addy.
2: goals, So just because I know there yeah. were the three goals I sort of became familiar with subsequently in 82-83. Individual goals against Ajax, a winner at Rangers on New Year's Day, And a goal against Switzerland on his Scotland debut. They're worth looking up all three. They're glorious goals. So classy. And so, um, yeah, the Switzerland one in particular on his debut flicks it up and just flicks up with his right foot and then volleys it with his left uh, lobbed volley over the keeper. Like seriously high-class stuff. It wasn't just um, the volume of goals. It was the quality as well that stood out. And Arsenal were really, I think they finished 10th the year before um, and I think some Arsenal fans call that period the Dark Ages, not eighty-one to eighty-three. Um, so it feels like, it, I mean, in hindsight, he should have gone to Arsenal. He had the option to go to Liverpool and Man United, which is something we might chat about. But but I can certainly understand why Arsenal wanted him, and uh, it feels like he, that's the impact people expected him to have, which in reality, of course, didn't happen. Even though his career wasn't a disaster, at Arsenal. You know, I looked at his numbers, and he they're decent, um, but they just like you said, they weren't transformative. Well. <laughs>
0: I'll give you a, a, a kind of inkling of what Arsenal were like. Is uh, the first time I went to Highbury, I saw Everton lose one nil in a shocker of a game. But Arsenal's goal was scored by Brian McDermott, yes, who who was I think number ten in that match. So Arsenal's creativity was coming through Brian McDermott. Of course, they. I think Liam Brady was maybe he missed that match or something, but mm. he he was he was either. On his way to Italy, or or wasn't quite as he was in the late 70s, so they were certainly looking for it. But there was something about a Scottish forward, you know, at that time. Um, he'd played with a Lisbon Lion, he played with Bobby Lennox, so there was a direct that's line. incredible, isn't it? It, yeah. it is incredible. I mean, I, I, I looked it out, I looked it up. He made his second appearance in the um. In the Scottish League Cup, I think it was scoring the opening in a three-nil win over Clyde, and providing the assist for Bobby Lennox to score Celtic's third goal. So the, the the kind of lineage was there, the aura was there, and just to give you an idea of the the players he had in front of him um, in terms of playing for Scotland as well. But uh, these are these are the kind of um, names that that were all around at the same time. That Charlie Nicholas was uh, was making his way in England. You've got Kenny Dalglish, Steve Archibald, Morris Johnston, Ali McCoist, Brian McLeir, Gordon Jury, Davy Cooper, Andy Gray, Paul Sturrock, and I'll throw in Graham Sharp as well.
1: You know, it's, well it's yeah, it's it's parochial good... in
0: some ways, but it's it's they're decent players,
2: and they still couldn't get out of a World Cup. Group. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but well, you, right, you it's a good list of forwards, especially yeah. when they're at their peak. I mean, yeah.
1: If you think about sort of going to the '86 World Cup, which w- which would have been the World Cup for um, Nicholas, and I mean, you know, he did go to it. But what was going on around then? I mean, you know, Dalguis, so he's one of the best players in Europe. Archibald at Barcelona, um, you know, helping up. them win their first league in eleven years. You have got Sharp and uh, Gray up front for that brilliant Everton team. It's uh, you know you have got Frank Macaveni who's having that kind of oh, you yeah. know one, wonder season with West Ham. Then you get into like who you've got left you know back in Scotland: Moe Johnston, Ali McCoist, Mark McGee, Paul Sturrock. He's got you know that's just to get in the squad. It's ridiculous. Mm. It's uh, I don't know. If, I mean, I don't I don't know enough enough about Scottish football to know. But I mean, have they ever had a kind of depth pool of talent up front like that? That's just absurd.
0: In some ways, it, it was when I was growing up. You you just expected this. You you, you just expected, especially Scottish forwards. It was yeah. forwards. So of course, we, we all all made jokes about goalkeepers, and there was a reason for that because the only time you really saw Scottish football was the goal clips on sort of on the ball or or Saint and Greaves. So of course you saw goalkeepers' errors because that was all you were being shown. But there was a there was a almost a kind of mythology that grew up around Scottish forwards. Of course. Dalgleish sort of helped, but he he certainly wasn't the, the start of it, and you know Charlie Dennis coming law. to yep Dennis law Jimmy Johnston um Charlie Nicholas coming to London was was of a, a kind there. And he, he did have a predecessor in the seventies called Peter Marinello, who also had the kind of George Best haircut and you know looked very good in the in the newspapers. And, you know, Charlie Nicholas always took a good photograph. And of course, we know from his subsequent media work that he uh, he was good in front of a microphone. Um so he was the kind of player that that the press uh went after. And of course that can be a double edged sword because if things are going well, your flavor of the month, you're getting the endorsements, you're getting the girls, it all happens for you. But the moment, I wouldn't say it goes badly. The moment it goes sort of ordinary, um, then they're after you, you know, and they're and they're asking the questions. But you know, these are these are what players have have always had to deal with. Um, but perhaps at that time in the in the 80s, you're beginning to to see a a, a more kind of modern media coming through where where the, the element of quotes and perhaps less of a, uh, a formal approach between journalists or certainly an on-the-record formal approach between journalists and players uh, were coming through. Um, there, it, it, it was always that with George Best and the absolute superstars of the game, but, but certainly Charlie Nicholas was in the press a lot and mm. there was interest uh-huh. in the, the lifestyle and the attitudes and think, so on. Do
2: you think that would have been different had he gone... To Liverpool or United because he had the chance, and they were the two. I know Everton would become superior to United, but probably in the summer of '83, um, Liverpool or United were the probably the two, certainly most high profile, probably the two best teams in the country.
0: Well, I think expectations would have been lower um, if you score ten goals a season, uh, and you know you 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 make your way in the in the team. It's easier when you're surrounded by good players to come into a, a, a historically. Huge club who were at a relatively low ebb, and say you change it uh, at 21, uh, first time living out of Glasgow. Yeah, good um, luck with that. It's a tough. It's a tough call.
2: I think the, I was just going to say the reasons are interesting. I, I know that he didn't get on with Ron Atkinson at all. I I think I read somewhere that he was angling towards United until he met Atkinson um, and just didn't get on with him at all. And I'm pretty sure the reason he turned down Liverpool was just a fear that he wouldn't play because, of course, in those days squad rotation was minimal and they had Russian Dalglish who were as good as probably as good as anything in Europe um, but it's interesting I wonder if he had his time again whether he would go to Liverpool maybe um, and take his chances but who
0: knows Just want to wrap up uh, this brief discussion of, of Charlie Nicholas you know he was Scottish footballer of the uh, PFA Football of the year in 83 and football writers player of the year in, in 83 Arsenal player of the year in 84 so it wasn't a an entirely uh damp squib at at arsenal. Um you know he 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 won the Scottish Premier League in 80 81 81 82 of course you did if you were playing for Celtic uh then and he did win the league cup at, at arsenal. So it's not a career unfulfilled but I just wonder if he was one of those players and and you know maybe we see some to d- around today or in the period in which you know, this podcast looks at in the 80s and 90s football. Was he one of those players who was better at 19 than he was at 29? Just throw that to Mike. I mean, do you whether whether you saw him directly, because it was a little before your time, but do you think that there are players, perhaps particularly forwards, better at 19 than they are at 29?
1: Yeah, I think there probably are. And I think there's a tendency with oh, like teenage prodigies, I suppose, that if if they don't cash it in and, you know, have, I don't know, the the kind of career that... Um, well, know, like Zyde Messi
2: hat. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: You know, that, that, some, that something must have gone wrong somewhere. It's just, um, yeah. So, I mean, well, yeah, we, we, we were talking about Michael Owen before, then it was the classic sort of case in point. Of the, if you To see him at the 98 World Cup, you probably would have envisioned a ve- very different career from him for him at the end of that tournament. Than, yeah. And he still had a brilliant career. I mean, no way around that but um, I don't know you you create a kind of level of expectation for yourself don't you if, you, if you're if you that good that young that you know in a lot of cases it's almost impossible to to match I would say yeah. well, I think you're right
2: there's enough I mean often it's I mean Owen is, is obviously a story of injuries yeah. uh, but also confidence is such a big thing for so many players who are brilliant when they're young when they hit that first kind of rough spell and they never quite get over it I don't know I, I'm, I'm always fascinated by sliding doors I mean I, I do feel like Nicholas' career would have been a lot different had he gone to Liverpool, maybe to United. Um, but I think there's something in it, though. Definitely, um, that just that whole freedom of expression and fearlessness. Um, and it almost, I guess, when you're at that age, it almost doesn't seem real. And then when it starts to get real, it can be, it can kind of drag you down. People just peak at different times, don't they? It happens in yeah. in every aspect of life.
1: Yeah. And, and yeah, I, and yeah, career moves as well. I mean, uh, if if everyone's after you, they're coin flip decisions. I mean. You know, everyone's a genius in hindsight, aren't they? But I don't know how do you know at the time whether you make there's there's so much of like making a move like yeah, that, precisely. whether it's gonna work out for you is out completely out of your control no matter how good you are anyway.
0: Yeah. Well I, I always think that the hardest things you can do is grow up in public and uh oh, yeah. can you that's imagine? what Charlie was mm. was asked to do. And you know, he, he had a, a laudable career, but perhaps not the one, as you say, Mike, that was envisaged for him. He also uh, had a pretty good at, spell at 19...
2: back. Pretty good spell back in Scotland, first with Aberdeen and then with Celtic. Um, so, yeah, but you're right. It's difficult, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> we, we were talking about Graham Hick on the cricket pod the other yeah. week and uh, we'd say this, they had an unfulfilled career, for God's sake. It's yeah. difficult, but but you're right. It's, it's all based on expectations when someone is that good, when they're that young. Mm. Um, but it's just, oh, there are so yeah. many variables, aren't there, that you, you simply cannot, there's never going to be a simple... A kind of pattern between performance at the age of 19 and 29, like Gary said. Yeah, well, well it's, it's a
1: strange, being, yeah. it's a strange Speaking in- alchemy. Speaking of injuries, actually, so his one World Cup he played in the eighty six. Oh, yeah, Frank uh, Files. Oh, yeah, well, a hero of Robin Hart. <laughs> put in the most like, cynical tackle on him that, that put him out of the game, and you just think, well, it, you know, if he goes past him and scores, you know, mm. How differently might he be remembered in a Scotland shirt? But,
2: yeah, it, was, um... it was Klaus Bergwin of Denmark. So, um, well, they're 1-0 up with well, a few minutes to go. Yeah, and he, was brand- he wasn't quite through on goal, but he was. I think he was through on the last line. And Berggren just basically stunned some in the Achilles from yeah. behind. Oh, which a know, terrible tackle. It is, yeah. He said, basically, I, ha- I had to do it for Denmark, but he did feel quite bad about it, I think.
0: Yeah, well... Um... On that on that point, we'll uh, we'll close our retrospective both of of Charlie Nicholas and of the group stages of France '98, and uh, we'll be back soon with the next episode of Ness and Dormer. It remains only for me to say thanks very much to Rob Smythe.
1: Thank you, Gary,
0: and Mike Gibbons.
1: Cheers, Gary. Thanks.
0: We'll be back soon. I've been Gary Naylor. <laughs>